Hello. Hi there. So uh, welcome back, guys. This is the Weirdest Thing podcast. I hope I, everybody's Thanksgiving was good. Yeah. Yeah, I do, too. Um, as we. <laughs> yeah, I really have nothing more to say than that. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's it. Yeah. Um, uh, my name is Amelia Poirot. I'm uh, Scotty Milder. And oh, by the way, happy last night of Hanukkah. That's the oh, thing I was yes. going to say. Yeah, Sorry, I interrupted you with the Thanksgiving thing. Yeah, no, it's fine. Um, I got the menorah yes. going behind me there. And I see. Being, being real Jewy over here. So Totes, uh, full throttle Jew over in the <laughs> in the Milder house right now. Yeah. Um, um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, uh, welcome back. And uh, should we, uh, first off, I think we should discuss last night's episode of Yellow Jackets. Yellow Jackets. Guys, this has now become a Yellow Jackets stand podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope you're ready for that. If you're not watching the show, yeah. press pause until I guess about January, because I think that's when the series is, <laughs> the season is going to end uh, yeah. and then come back to us then. <laughs> I am 100% in throat. Do we say the name of the podcast? Hold on before we get into this. Did we do I that? I think I did, but if we didn't, it's the weirdest thing podcast. It's the weirdest thing podcast. We're a couple of besties who are going to talk to you about the weirdest stuff we've found out in the world and part of that is the showtime series yellow jackets <laughs> which we are and like i think i'm trying to decide whether i enjoy the show more or i enjoy you texting me all of the craziest conspiracy theories that people on reddit are coming up with i have never like there are a couple of shows that i like to dip into the subreddits about and sort of see what people are saying ted lasso is one i'm trying to remember i know there's another one oh well it's not a it's not a tv show but like i dip into the my favorite murder oh, yeah. subreddit and see what people are saying about the episodes this Okay, so in case anybody missed our sort of recap discussion of it last week, like mm-hmm. last episode, right? We talked right. about it's a it's the story of high school girls soccer team. They crash in the Canadian wilderness and it jumps between 1996 when they were, you know, going to the soccer tournament to nationals and 2021. And then there's also other flashes that we see of a different right. time period that has yet to be completely determined. Mm-hmm. And there's some definitely some weird stuff going on in there. And the people who are posting on Reddit about the show are coming up with it's it's like a Mad Libs of of, <laughs> of plot theories. It's like what if so and so is actually so and so's father who we saw and maybe they have had an operation plastic surgery i don't know something yeah. to become a different race and they're this now person <laughs> who is showing up in the 2021 timeline. That's my favorite thing about it is how. Like, I I don't get on the message boards as much as you, but it seems like people are like getting so committed to their theories that they're ignoring basic things like the character and actors, ethnicities or gender or yes. Yes. And I said it last night and I will, I will say it again. This, and this is where I get canceled. These people who are doing this stuff, who are sitting there and looking at actors who are of completely different ethnicities 
and mm-hmm. being like, well, maybe this person that we see is actually adult, this character, again, played by actors of completely different ethnicities. And yeah. I just am like, you are the white people that we are talking about when we talk <laughs> about white people. Right. That you're like, I don't know. They're brown. I know they're not white. Yeah. I don't know what they are. Isn't it all the same? No, well, I mean, and then there's the there's the theory about a certain character as an adult being the trans male like yes. like one of the girls in the um in the plane crash then transitions to be male and now there's this male character that's the that's theory. the theory that's the and, theory yes. and i'm like i'm sorry guys in 2021 showtime is not gonna be so fucking stupid to cast <laughs> an obviously cis male to be a trans male like they're not yeah. going to do that like it's- yeah additionally like we don't know exactly every skippers skip i guess if you're yeah. not here for the yellow jackets talk um but if you're not here for the yellow jackets talk like what's wrong if you're with not you? here for Get the yellow it. jackets talk you're not here for us man we need your support in this time this difficult time as we are watching the show that is coming out episode by episode I know. week by week this is this is torture yeah but we also don't know where this character is going, getting back to this weird, uh, like trans theory that some people have. We don't know where this character is going, but it seems somewhat clear that the character might not have the best intentions or might have sort of like nefarious mm-hmm. things going on. And uh, like, I don't know to be like, Oh, it's, it's the trans person. Who's yeah. like the creepy bad guy. Like, yeah. Let's, on, let's, guys. let's make the creepy bad guy a trans person. And then let's cast a, Cis and then let's cast a male cis dude to do it. Yeah, because this is 1982 or whatever. Like, I, <laughs> I mean, that's just. I'm sorry. Like, that's not going to happen. Showtime. Like, if they had read that in a the script, they would have put a kibosh on that. Showtime doesn't need the fucking like letter writing and boycott campaign that would come from that. Rightly so, right. by the way. And also, I just think it's. I mean, I don't want to be shitty, but it's just a stupid theory. It's real I, stupid. I'm not saying that this person doesn't have ulterior motives, but that is a stupid theory. There, yeah. are, there are a lot of like really there are some good ones theories yeah. that are coming out around. You the did show. you did point out one that like I think we decided we think is like we're not going to say what it is because we don't want to spoil but we think one of the conspiracy theories is actually probably likely true possibly but also they did a similar um, okay they didn't do a similar thing in terms of (laughs) storyline we be very (laughs) clear about that they didn't do a similar things in terms of storyline but they did a similar thing in like showing a scene and then immediately cutting to another scene in Ted Lasso that really made it seem like the two scenes were connected Mm -hmm. and then they were not so I am feeling burned by that. Ah, okay. Um, so, so proceed I mean, with I caution. S- I still, yes, proceed with caution. Yeah. Guys, again, if you have access to Showtime and you're not on this show, well, I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't even want to know you. I think, I think when we last talked about it, we were sort of still in the place of being like, I mean, this is really good and it's fucked up. And like, mm-hmm. but you know, are they going to be able to sustain this for 10 episodes? Mm-hmm. Well, now we're four episodes in and I feel like just isn't like this last episode wasn't as creepy as some of the earliest one earlier ones, but okay. But it's what just, about, what about I'm making a motion because I'm not trying to spoil <laughs> it for our readers. Yeah. So I'm just doing a physical, a physical thing for Scotty. And yeah, I'm, like that was creepy. I'm, but I you're mean, right. It wasn't as creepy, but, but as creepy. as far as like just the narrative getting more interesting, I'm like, this is, I think 
definitely the best show on television. I'm having a great For, time. Like a long time. Well, I don't know. Mayor of Easttown was real fucking good, but it was also Mayor of Easttown was much more just like a slow burn kind of character, sort of mystery, but the mystery wasn't that important. But it was just like a really great <laughs> actor showcase. You know, I feel like with Mayor of Easttown. When they tied it up, I was sitting there being like, who the fuck is that? Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, it did have oh, that. that person that they showed for like three seconds in an episode <laughs> at the beginning of the series. Right. I mean, the, <laughs> they, that's exactly what the first season of True Detective did, which it was like eight seasons of amazing television or eight episodes of amazing television. And then two episodes of like, wait, what? Wait, yeah. yeah, in an in an effort to be like, haha, like yeah. gotcha, you know. I yeah. don't know. I think it's really good. All of the actors on Yellow Jackets are fantastic. Again, if you were like mid to late Gen Xer or old millennial, I think you might enjoy this. It's just a real good time. It's yeah, and it's I'm I'm, I'm living for Misty, the character Misty, Christina Ricci. She's just a fucking chocolate martinis. God bless her. <laughs> All right. I, and I will say it is much better. It's a much better use of my time than the month I spent watching Criminal Minds. So. You spent so long watching Criminal Minds. <laughs> that just I... became like my own like death march. Like it was just like, <laughs> I have to get to the end of this thing. And then I got to the end and was like, wow, that. Okay, that really wasn't worth it at all. (laughs) I spent a few days over the last two weeks watching, I think it was a Bravo show Mm -hmm. or it was done in the vein of a Bravo show, but it's on Netflix and it's a show called Selling Sunset. Mm. Yeah, I've heard a little Um, bit about that. Yeah, it's uh, based on a real estate agency in Los Angeles. And, you know, these are people who are selling four, five, six, ten, twelve million dollar homes. Mm-hmm. And two twin brothers run it. And they're the Oppenheim brothers. The, mm. the real estate agency is called the Oppenheim Group. And then literally everybody else who works there is just like a, a really hot real housewives of fill in the blank. <laughs> um, and it is. Is, is I, it a reality show or is it it's like a, it's a it's a reality show and happy quotes. quotes you know yeah. what i mean because none of them are real and it's just so heavily scripted and i was telling a friend of mine that i was like really the really reason that i watch it is because they spend a lot of time showing these like beautiful multi-million mm-hmm. dollar homes in los angeles and it's just you know cool to see these like ridiculous homes built into the side of a mountain and and the way that like it'll be this like incredible home and a couple will come in and they'll be like oh "Mm, i don't like the handles on the cabinet (laughs) so you're sort of like you sort of envious watching and hate watching probably a a little bit yeah and like um you know the yeah they'll like literally be like i don't like the drawer pulls on these drawers and (laughs) you know it's like a six million dollar home and they'll be like we'll make them like a four million dollar offer and like i'm just like this is and you might as well be on mars like this is a completely alien world to me yeah it's just ridiculous. Yeah. I've just, I've just, I've been going back and rewatching one of my standards, which is Battlestar Galactica, which oh, I just, uh-huh. I have to return to like at least once a year. Did you, wa- I- did you end up watching Outlander at all? You, no. Scotty was texting me about Outlander last night. Yeah, so I found out that apparently Ronald Moore, who was the creator of Battlestar Galactica, the reboot, the 2004 Mm -hmm. reboot, 
obviously, is the showrunner for Outlander. And I, I've got to be honest, I've never been interested in Outlander. And because <laughs> it's all I know about it is it's like historical time travel romance sex show. And like, yes, I'm like that's I mean, if, unless there's lots of I murders. I actually think you could it. take out everything except historical sex. <laughs> I, I watched a few episodes and I was like, all these people do is F. And the <laughs> thing is, too, the thing is, is that it's it's so weird. OK, I'm sorry. Continue. And then I'm going to put in my two about this whole genre well i was just gonna say like i mean like unless there's murders and monsters you, you know my philosophy unless there's murders and or monsters i'm generally not interested in most things right and so i mean maybe there's murders on outlander but just everything i'd heard about it it just never really appealed to me but then i found out ron moore who i'm a big fan of because of battlestar galactica mm-hmm. um is the showrunner and has been from the start and i'm like well mm-hmm. maybe i should give it a try but then you were just like yeah it's just lots of naked people so it is. It is. So there's been, okay. <clears throat> it sounds like I'm about to start like a thesis on this. <clears throat> Go for it. There are some, I don't know if it happened with 50 shades of gray or if it was happening before that, but that's just sort of like where the moment occurs in my like pop culture zeitgeist. Right. Mm-hmm. But it feels like there was a moment when it was like, what if we, what if we make stuff about hot people fucking? Mm-hmm. And that's like what it is. It's Game and, of Thrones too, to a degree added to that. Okay. Yeah. 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 You know, absolutely. And <laughs> the thing is, is that I'm just like, I don't know what the plot is aside from watching these two people get naked. Cause it's literally like two people will look at each other and then it's like a barn, like a shot of them in a barn and like I mean, clothing is coming off. And it just feels like, it feels like. And I do not mean this like in a derivative manner, but it feels like housewife porn. Yeah. And cool. But it's just not your, I mean, my thing is like, if I want to watch people fuck, like that's not the, like, I'm not going to get a stars. I can do that for free on the internet. (laughs) Right. I'm not going to get a stars (laughs) subscription for that. (laughs) That's the thing, right? Is that you have to, you've got to pay, like pay for a star subscription for housewife porn. Yeah. Which is just. I mean, yeah, again, cool. If like you're into that, there's, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to kink shame anybody here. If that makes your socks roll up and down. Awesome. Or if you, I I, I don't know. And maybe, maybe other people have watched the show and they're like, no, Outlander is actually a really cool show about a woman who's like yeah. taking control of her life in a really weird situation. Maybe to me, it just, you just I was like, get that from it. no, it just felt like a lot of really hot people having sex with with two hot people having sex with each other, which frankly only like gets you so far, you know, I I I guess unless that's, unless that's your, you know, that's that's your your bag. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I'll probably watch the first episode just because it's Ron Moore and I want to give it a shot, but yeah, it's like the, the concept never appealed to me. And then when you, you kind of like confirmed the reasons why the concept didn't appeal to me. So it's probably just not my thing, Like, good for you, Ron Moore for keeping your career going, but I keep up. They keep, talking about a new like trying to get a new Battlestar Galactica spinoff or reboot or something going and I'd like to see that happen they had the guy who did that Mr. Robot show um on USA which was a really good show he was supposed to do a new Uh Battlestar Galactica that was going to be a continuation like not a reboot but a continuation of the Mm -hmm. 2004 one and it's like I don't know that guy he was a good writer that was a good show so I would give it a shot but we'll see we'll see all right thank you for coming to our podcast (laughs) we'll see you in two weeks okay (laughs) um all right well should I guess I guess I'm going first should I just dive on in 
Yeah, I guess so. Cool. Well, so this week I am going to talk. This is something that I'd be really curious. I know we have some younger listeners like in their 20s, born in the Mm -hmm. 90s. Mm -hmm. I'd be really curious to know if like this was even on your radar. I mean, we Uh, also have some mature listeners. Yeah. And I think I guess I guess the question would be, was that on your radar for you guys as well? Yeah, that's true. If you are like anywhere younger than 30 or older than like 50, I'd like to know where this fell in your like cultural landscape. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to be talking about the raging controversy around the song Cop Geller by fantastic the band body count so so my sources for this are wikipedia a review by uh the village voice critic robert christgau from 1992 uh an article called blaming hip-hop for violence a four-part series uh, by matthew mckinnon i don't know the original place this came from it was just like a web archive article Mm. um (laughs) an interesting commentary i'll talk more about it called the music of murder by dennis r martin and then ice tea is the issue social responsibility this is from michael kinsley from time july 1992 and then a lot more sources i've got the new york times i've got kerrang magazine i've got billboard.com metal hammer blabbermouth.net and clicktrack.fm so Okay. So first off, a lot of sources, a lot of sources on this one, but a lot of it's just like little bits and pieces cobbled together, you know? Okay. So first off, just uh, let me talk about the musician and actor Ice-T. Okay. Who I would imagine most people are aware of. So Ice-T, he was born Tracy Lauren Marrow in Newark, New Jersey on February 16th, 1958. And what blows my mind about that is he's only like 12 years younger than my mom. He's just an older guy than I thought he was. <laughs> yeah, uh, um, that I, is that is surprising. Yeah, his uh, he was born to Solomon Marrow and his wife, uh, Alice Marrow. Solomon was a conveyor belt mechanic. They then moved to upscale Summit, New Jersey, when Tracy was like a really young boy. And he said that he first became aware of racism when he watched how his new white friends uh, treated the other black kids in their school. He said he realized mm. he was escaping that treatment because he he had lighter skin. Than these other black kids mm-hmm. um and then when he told his mother about this she just told him honey people are stupid <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> unfortunately his mother died of a heart attack when he was in the third grade so he was then raised by his father like his father was a single father he said his first experience with like crime and criminal activity happened when his dad got him a new bike for christmas and then the bike was like immediately stolen oh. he went and told his dad and his dad said well then you ain't got no bike so he was like, oh, I guess that's the way the world works. So he oh, then man. went out and like started stealing a bunch of bike parts. And he said he built three new, quote, weird looking, brightly painted bikes. <laughs> and, he, and, he, and he said his dad never like noticed or acknowledged what he'd done. So he was like, well, I guess I got away with that. So, okay. And then his father, Solomon, also died of a heart attack when Tracy was 13. Oh, shit. Yeah. And I didn't see whether he had any siblings. I don't think he did. Okay. I think it was just him and his parents. And then here he was on his own. He ended up going and living with an aunt and uncle, uh, I think in New Jersey, and then was kind of shuttled around for a while. Eventually ended up with another aunt and uncle in a middle-class black neighborhood in South Los Angeles. And while there, he shared a bedroom with his older cousin, Earl. And, you know, at the time, Tracy was like, I think very into like R&B and, you know, Motown, stuff like that. But his this cousin Earl was like super into hard rock and heavy metal. 
Hmm. He introduced him to bands like Led Zeppelin, Slayer. Or this would have been pre-Slayer, but like Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, you know, all those early metal bands. Mm -hmm. And that's important because Tracy, you know, obviously Ice-T, he's mostly known as a rapper, but he's always been a headbanger, like kind of at heart. Like he's always had that in him. And that's important when it gets to body count. Okay. Um, so this family, he and his aunt and uncle, and I think his cousin Earl ended up moving to the Crenshaw district of LA when he was in middle school, where he went to a mostly white high school, but it did include some black students who were like bust in from South Central. Mm. And then when he was in high school, he went to the mostly black Crenshaw High. And it was while he was in high school, he started sort of experimenting with music. Um, he was a he was a straight edger, which is interesting. Okay. What is a straight edger? No drugs, no drinking, no smoking. Okay. Like I, clean I think, living. Okay. I think that's what I thought it was going to be, but I've never like really, really known. No drugs, no drink, no alcohol, clean living. Um, but he was affiliated with gang life. He never joined a gang, it sounds like. But okay. the school, you know, Crenshaw High School was known even at the time as like a hotbed of gang activity, gang mm. And like they had cliques from the Crips and the Bloods in this high school. And they used to like, you know, have battles in the hallways and stuff, it sounds like. Ooh. Tracy never joined a gang, but he was affiliated with the, with the Crips. And I'm not sure exactly what that means, affiliated with. Whether just like he was friends with some of them or whether he was like a little more like involved in the. Yeah. He also became a big fan of a writer, a guy named Iceberg Slim, who is a novelist, but also a former pimp. And he wrote an autobiographical novel called Pimp, which was published in 1967. Tracy memorized passages from the books and would recite them to his friends who like enjoyed this. And so they would say, Mm -hmm. yo, kick some more of that by Ice-T. And so that, hence the name Ice-T. That's Mm. kind of where it came from. Okay. So he started performing. This is when he first started performing music. He wasn't doing hip hop. He was part of a singing group called the Precious Few of Crenshaw High School. Mm. And then uh, when he was 17, he ended up moving out of his aunt and uncle's house. He started receiving, like getting survivor benefits from his dad's death. Mm. And so he used the money to rent an apartment for him and his pregnant girlfriend. I'm sorry. How old is he at this? He was 17. Okay. Um. So, you know, and he and his girlfriend, she was pregnant. And so he got them an apartment. And even though he's getting these survivor benefits, it wasn't like quite enough money to get by. So he was supplementing his income by selling pot, stealing car stereos, things like that. Mm-hmm. So he was like involved with crime. But everything I read, it was like all pretty minor. You know, mm-hmm. like nothing to no to violent get, crime, yeah, nothing to get too hot and bothered about, which is important when we get to the cop killer. Okay. Okay. Um, and then his daughter was born in 1977, at which point he enlisted in the army. And I think it was because mm. he was like, I need to like provide for my family. Right, right. And like this whole stealing car stereos thing is not really the way to do it. So he went into basic training and then was assigned to the 25th Infantry Division in Hawaii. And while he was there, he and a group of soldiers got in trouble because they stole a rug. Again, pretty minor, <laughs> but just yeah. like, what? just stealing a rug. For, it just reminds me of the Big Lebowski. Yeah. <laughs> a rug of all yeah. things. It, it tied the room together. Um, <laughs> <laughs> while awaiting trial, he got a bonus check, I think from the army and was like, fuck this and went AWOL. So went AWOL? He went AWOL. Okay. Um, but he returned a month later. They kind of it sounds like they kind of gave him a slap on the wrist. Like he got what was called a non-judicial punishment. Okay. But while he was in the army, that's when he really like became aware of hip hop. 
So he was already into like metal and rock and he was already into like R&B and stuff like that. But then around this time, this is the rise of like early hip hop. And he heard the Sugar Hell Gang's Rapper's Delight, which, Mm. you know, was kind of the song I think that most people would say kind of put hip hop on the map, Um, Mm -hmm. like early, early on. I said the hip so this like he started performing his own raps over like either early hip-hop records or like instrumental records but he found that the music didn't fit his form of delivery he had this much like harsher delivery like i think at the time if you listen to like rapper's delight it's like very much like smooth flow kind of thing Mm-hmm. If you listen to Ice T, he's got that delivery that became much more like associated with hardcore rap later. Okay. Much more like staccato and things like that. So it was like, you know, he was into hip hop, but I, I don't think it was occurring to him like, oh, hey, I could like make this into a thing. Mm-hmm. But while he was in the army, he did buy some cheap stereo equipment, including a couple turntables, a mixer and some speakers. So he started to learn turntablism. Mm-hmm. Um, and that allowed him to actually craft music that sort of better matched his rapping style. And then in 1979, he got an early honorable discharge. Um, and this came because I think his com- uh, commanding officer was like, hey, you can get out early because you're a single dad um, and they'll let you muster out. So he was like, okay, I'll, I'll take that. Yep. So he was discharged as a private first class. And then later in an interview, and I didn't, I didn't go and listen to this podcast. It was on the Adam Carolla podcast. Okay. Um, in 2012, he claimed that after getting out of the army, he started a career as a bank robber. Now that's a twist. Okay. That, that's like, that's an escalation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and apparently he told Adam Grola, he said like, quote, only punks go for the drawer. We got to go for the safe. Um, <laughs> wow. Okay. And then he also said on this podcast that he was glad that by the time he was like making these emissions, the statute of limitations on any. <laughs> He's just blast. like watching. He's just like got a got a yeah. notification in his phone that's like talk about this shit now. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I don't know anything more about that. Like I don't know if it's a tall tale or if it's true, mm-hmm. but like. Mm-hmm. You know, like you said, that's a twist. That's a twist. Um, But he was mostly he really wanted to provide for his kid, you know, and like he was trying to figure out a legitimate way to do it. He didn't want to get sucked into gang life. So he started making a career as a DJ, like going to parties and stuff and just almost being like a club DJ. Mm. That's where he started using the name Ice-T. Okay. But then, you know, he'd be DJing at these parties and he would start rapping. And he noticed he was getting more attention for his rapping than he was for his DJing. Okay. So he was like, I am I think maybe I've got some skills here. Like maybe I've got some talent. So he decided to really pursue that. Mm -hmm. He was still kind of off and on involved with crime. And like I said, I think largely just trying to get by, it sounds like, you know, I don't Mm know. So he talked about he he and his friends would rob jewelry stores. And then two of his friends ended up going to prison for like a high-end jewelry store robbery where they took two and a half million dollars worth of jewelry. Ooh. And Ice-T later said that he had been involved and he had taken some of that jewelry and that he owed these friends a debt for taking the charge because it allowed him to like stay out and like keep pursuing his rapping career. Mm. In 1982, he met a producer named Willie Strong from a company called Saturn Records and Strong recorded his first single. It was called Cold Winds of Madness and that was from 1983. 
and it became like an underground hit but the radio stations wouldn't play it because even though he hadn't really adopted like this is a little bit before quote gangsta rap okay which he you know obviously ice T became associated with later mm-hmm. he, he was still like his lyrics were just like a little too hardcore for the squares you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so like the radio wouldn't play it but it became this like big underground hit and then he recorded a song killers in 1984 which was also like uh an underground hit and it had kind of like from what i read it said it had like a run dmc inspired sound but okay. again with like harder lyrics okay He started kind of moving in like the gangster rap direction after hearing a song by Schoolie D called PSK. What does it mean? Uh, he heard it in a club. He liked the sound and delivering and sort of thought, oh, this kind of matches what I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm. So he started to adopt that style. He did a song called Six in the Morning, which he did just on his own in his own Hollywood apartment. He had like a Roland TR-808 drum machine and just made like a real simple beat and did this song. And I think it became kind of like, it was like his entry into like the whole gangster rap world. Okay. See my homeboys cooling way, way out. Told them about my morning cold bugs them out. Shot a little dice, the knees got sore. Kicked around some stories about the night before. Posse to the corner where the fly girls chill. Threw action at some freaks, the one bitch got ill. She started acting silly, suddenly would not quit. Call us all punk pussy, said we are one shit. Even though he was like associated with gangster rap which was you know this was starting with like bands like nwa and you know ghetto boys and things like that mm-hmm. you know he was kind of part of that whole mix but he didn't he was like very careful not to identify himself as belonging to any particular gang because he didn't okay. want to like make enemies Mm-hmm. so he would like go so far as to wear both red and blue clothing okay. uh, in his videos um so as to like sort of not you know kind of be like i love all of you you know <laughs> let's all get along yeah. <laughs> he and his popularity just kept increasing so he ended up landing a deal with sire records which was like, was like an imprint i think still is of warner brothers okay. it was like a major record deal the sire records president seymour stein liked his demo and signed him in i think 1986 and he released his first album on sire which was rhyme pays in 1987 it hit number 93 on the u.s billboard 200 and then reached number 23 on the top r&b hip-hop albums chart and ultimately was certified gold so at this point it's like his career is just like going yeah and like ice tea was like a month when i was a little kid like ice tea was among the first rappers whose name i knew and this would have been like the late 80s this is like los alamos new mexico so he's clearly right, big enough right. that i'm hearing about him you know? right i think mine was run dmc i remember when i mean the first one i actually remember was dj jazzy jeff and the fresh prince <laughs> <laughs> like that that was my first like wait what is this what is this that's a different way to sing (laughs) a a song yeah yeah but at the time he was like like i said he was very associated with gangster rap but he was like a secret headbanger and had been since he was a little kid and he Mm -hmm. really wanted to be in a heavy metal band so that led to the creation of the band body count 
Okay. Okay. So let's talk about body count. So while he was in high school at Crenshaw High, he had these other friends, including future body count members of the guitarist Ernie C, or two guitarists actually, Ernie C and D-Rock the Executioner, and then the drummer Beastmaster 5 and the bassist Moose Man. You know, they're all black kids at Crenshaw High who were super super into heavy metal, (laughs) which was like some kind of set them apart from right their peers you know yeah and so here and then now here it is you know 15 years later or whatever and uh ice t's got this like just popping career as a rapper but he's mm-hmm. like he calls up his old buddies from high school he's like let's start a metal band okay um <laughs> and so they did and that was the creation of body camp he and Earl C, who are the only members of Body Count who are still in the band to this day. They're like the two original members. They wrote all the music. I think Earl C really writes all the music and then uh, Ice-T writes the lyrics. Okay. And he took on the role of the lead vocalist, obviously. And what's interesting, so this is like happening at the time. Like, I think if you say rap metal today, like if I was to say rap metal, like what's your association band-wise, if you have any? None. None. (laughs) None. Zero. Like anyone, anyone probably a little younger than us Mm -hmm. is going to say, you say rap metal, they're going to think Limp Bizkit. They're going to think that like new metal okay. shit from the late 90s. Okay. Uh-huh. This is a good 10 years before that. And this is uh-huh. really like the start of rap and metal. And like people, I don't think, I don't know that people really understand or remember these were wildly different scenes. Yeah. Like if you're into metal, you are not into rap. Right. If you're into rap, you are not into metal mm-hmm. to the point where people would have fights you know was it um was it uh fairly delineated by race as well i, I mean, think like i think at the time that was definitely a factor uh-huh. um metal i'm i'm a metal dude like i will but i will cop to this about metal metal can be real rednecky okay. like you can really appeal to like this kind of redneck racist you know mm. thing um right. you know most metal is now this isn't like this is speaking with a broad brush because there are like plenty okay. of metal musicians who are not white you know right. like you have like tom Araya from slayer who's you know latinx and you have mm-hmm. you know but i think you know the vast majority of metal bands metal fans are white dudes you know Mm-hmm. Um, particularly in this country, particularly in like LA, you know? Yeah. And I, I mean, I was, I was also, you know, sort of talking about specifically at that time as well. I didn't, right. I didn't imagine that there was a huge yeah, amount this, of. This, there's definitely a lot more blending that happens now, but at this time they were very distinct scenes yeah. and they were like, I remember, I don't know if you remember the band living color. They, yeah. were on a, uh, they were like, you know, one of the first sort of known black heavy metal bands. And my memory, and they're a very good band, but my memory in the 90s is it was treated as a novelty. Like, look at these black guys doing heavy metal. Isn't that Mm, funny? Which mm. is pretty gross. Yeah. (laughs) But at this time, you know, in the mid to late 80s, things were starting to converge a little bit. So, like, in 1986, Run DMC teamed up with Aerosmith to do a cover of Walk This Way, which is kind of, a lot of people consider the first, like, rap rock song that went huge. Mm -hmm. 
and then you had Beastie Boys did the album License to Ill, which mm-hmm. had, you know, Fight for Your Right to Party, No mm-hmm. Sleep Till Brooklyn. You know, No Sleep Till Brooklyn had a guest appearance from Carrie King, who's the guitarist for Slayer. So okay. things were starting. A lot of this was actually driven by a producer, a guy named Rick Rubin, who a lot of people would know. He was mm-hmm. had started Def Jam Records with Russell Simmons back in the 80s, was like instrumental with like Run DMC's career. But then he broke off and started doing his own thing. He started working with metal bands and he kind of started bringing things together. So he was like, I don't want to give him too much credit for it, but he was like part of that whole thing. You know, okay. You also had a Dutch band that I'd never heard of until doing the research for this called Urban Dance Squad. <laughs> that Urban apparently, Dance were, Squad. They were like big, I think in Europe, particularly like a big rap metal, rap rock band. Not which, Urban Dance Squad is not uh, a, the name of a band that I would uh, presume to be Dutch, uh, <laughs> to be Dutch or rap metal. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of things don't line up there. <laughs> it's it sounds along the lines of like what is it? Man, I'm steamroller. <laughs> <laughs> like you know what I mean? Right. It's like or, or like a band where it's like there's like 80 members yeah, and they like put out a weird Christmas album every year or something or like I weird mean, dance music. I don't know. That's maybe why like Urban Dance Squad has sort of like gone down into the bottom of the history bin because like I, I don't feel like yeah it's like a lot of things just didn't line up <laughs> there. yeah yeah um there was also this was also the rise like the late 80s was the rise of what was called funk metal and so it was like kind of like early rap metal you had bands like red hot chili peppers okay um, yes fishbone and then my favorite one of my favorite bands of all time obviously faith no more who was okay. known for the song epic which was kind of like a rap song Is that what you said? I mean, funk metal, rap metal, like all these terms get kind of, but at the time they're calling it like funk metal. Okay. And then one band that I think deserves a fair amount of credit for like, I would say legitimizing rap to a metal audience Mm -hmm. is the band Anthrax. Mm. Uh, They're one of the big four thrash metal bands. Mm -hmm. They, uh, in 1987, put out kind of a joke rap song called I'm the Man. And it's not like a great, song and it's certainly (laughs) not a great rap song (laughs) Uh but i think what it did was like it was anthrax going out there saying like hey we're metalheads like you guys but we like this you know they're new yorkers so they're like we love this rap you know Mm hip-hop thing that's happening and then they got together with the group public enemy and did a cover of public enemy's song bring the noise in 1991 and a lot of people think really point to anthrax public enemy together bring the noise being like this is when rap metal people were like oh this like works like you can like these aren't diametrically opposed What a brother know once again back is the incredible rhyme animal, the uncannable thing. Public enemy number one, five things like mm-hmm. they can work together not as like because i think like the run dmc aerosmith thing and even beastie boys to a degree like a lot of it was sort of treated as like a novelty act you know but when anthrax and public enemy came together it was like oh this is for real 
Right. And so body counts starting right in the middle of this, Mm -hmm. you know, they ended up putting out their first album, self-titled album in 1991, March of 1991. They put it out a few months before Rage Against the Machine's first album. And Rage Against the Machine is also seen as like one of the first big rap metal bands. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about this album (laughs) Uh, because this is where the controversy comes in. Okay. So uh, it produced one major single called There Goes the Neighborhood. It was a satiric song sung from the point of view of a white rocker who's angry that black guys are encroaching on their territory. Okay. It's a really like, pretty funny song because mm-hmm. Ice-T is definitely like taking the piss out of like racist. I can't quote any of the lyrics because he uses the <laughs> word a lot. <laughs> okay. But so go and look them up on genius.com. Yeah. Or go watch the video. It's got a, mm-hmm. a pretty famous video that ends with a guitar on fire in the lawn of what looks like a Southern plantation house. Um, so it's, you know, obviously suggesting cross burnings. So the thing like you and I were talking about this last night and I was sort of saying like the thing about body count is like there was nothing subtle about what they were doing. Right. Yeah. It's pretty it's like in your face. Yeah. You know? Other songs on the album included Bowels of the Devil, mm. Evil Dick, uh, <laughs> the song KKK <laughs> Bitch. Okay. And then Mama's Gotta Die Tonight. So, so it was really something to throw on at your next family function. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. You, you know, Christmas is coming up. Everyone's... Guys, Christmas is coming. <laughs> throw that on the fucking Sonos or Pandora yeah. <laughs> station. Uh, and, you know, just like. Have some eggnog. <laughs> yeah. Enjoy the two. Open up your fucking advent calendars. Have a just, good time. Yeah. Have fun. Um, yeah (laughs) so at first the album didn't do that well because like i said this was a time where people were like rap and metal and like wait what why does ice t have guitars you know like (laughs) so uh the product manager from warner brothers a guy named jeffrey weiss said he said it was a huge challenge when we put it out initially it was a very bad response Mm. rap community didn't get it and the rock community didn't get it but then over time, it started to kind of grow. And like they had already performed at Lollapalooza. Oh, um, about Lollapalooza. Yeah. And they were like considered like one of the highlights of Lollapalooza. So, because mm-hmm. I guess uh, Ernie C, the guitarist, had met Perry Farrell, who, you know, the guy from Jane's Addiction who started mm-hmm. Lollapalooza, and they became friends. So then Perry Farrell invited Body Count to perform at Lollapalooza, I think in 91. Then the album came out in 92. It started to kind of grow it you know it debuted at number 32 on the billboard top 50 ultimately peaked at number 26 by january of the next year it had sold almost 500,000 copies it was ultimately certified gold so ended up doing pretty well in the long run probably in no small part because of the controversy Mm. It also got wildly mixed reviews. So like Rolling Stone only gave it two stars. I think all music only gave it like two stars. Okay. But then Kerrang, interestingly, Kerrang, which is like a big metal rock magazine, they gave it four stars, four out of five. And then Villas voice critic Robert Kreisgau gave it an A minus, and he listed it as one of the Village Voice's top 40 albums of the year. And so here's what he wrote about it. He said, Quote, metal connoisseurs may find Body Count, the band Ice-T has led out of South Central LA and onto a self-titled debut, a little simplistic. This is flat-out hard rock, short on soloistic intricacy and fancy structures, but anybody who thinks raw power is what metal is for will get off on its loud rush. Ice-T doesn't think metal's outrageousness should end with doomsday rhetoric and backstage blowjobs. Not that he's averse to backstage. Yeah. (laughs) Not that he's averse to backstage blowjobs from a KKK bitch. He teaches the Mm. proper use of white sheets. He also describes racism in a language metalheads can understand, kills several policemen, 
and cuts his mama into little pieces because she tells him to hate white people. This can be a very funny record. (laughs) And that's the thing. I want to come back to that idea of it being a funny record. Uh, I'll kind of come back, like put a pin in that. I'll come back to that. Okay. Because it's both the strength and I think the weakness of that album, Mm, probably. okay. Okay. So let's talk about Cop Killer. Let's do it. So the inspiration for the song. Uh, like I, I guess first before I get into that, I just want to say this is all happening with the backdrop of the Rodney King beating, which happened in March of ninety one. Yep. So right around when Body Count started, the album was released less than a month before the four cops who beat Rodney King were acquitted, and which of course precipitated the L.A. riots. Mm-hmm. So this is like right in the middle of all of that. Mm-hmm. The inspiration for the song came when they were rehearsing for the album and Ice-T was actually singing the Talking Heads song, Psycho Killer. Uh-huh. And Beastmaster 5, who was the drummer, I believe, he had the idea. He was like, why don't we do a revenge? Because this is, I think, right after the Rodney King beating. He was like, why don't we do a revenge fantasy about killing cops? And so this is what the guitarist Ernie C had to say. He said, it was more like Bob Marley's I Shot the Sheriff, a rally song for people with no voices that were able to scream fuck the police at the top Mm. of their lungs. It wasn't the reaction we got a year later. 92 was an election year. 91, we were just having a good time. Mm. I think the fact, I'll get to it, but I think the fact that 92, when the album came out, was an election year is a Yep. Uh So the album was actually supposed to be released under the title Cop Killer, which was the last song on the album. But then the controversy started to brew even before the album came out, because at a Time Warner shareholder meeting, Charlton Heston got up and angrily read the lyrics to KKK Bitch and (laughs) Cop Killer. Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, just wait, because I am going to play this clip for you because it's amazing. Here's good old Charlton Heston. I think this is actually he he went on and like he would go to like conservative conferences and do this. It was like a shtick that Charlton Heston was doing. But just the joy of hearing Charlton Heston read Ice T lyrics is Oh my god. So here we go. Okay. I got my 12 gauge sawed off. I got my headlights turned off. I'm about to bust some shots off. I'm about to dust some cops off. <laughs> I got my brain on hype. Tonight will be your night. Die, 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 pig, die. <laughs> the police. I know your family's grieving. <laughs> them. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> it was it was the last look that he's like reading the lyrics and he kind of looks up like, can you can you imagine? Yeah. Can, can you even believe these lyrics in our in our children's yeah. hands? Um, yeah, I just I, I could like I want to turn that into my ringtone. I think <laughs> <laughs> like, it's so amazing. <laughs> um, wow. Yeah. So ultimately, Time Warner started to get because of this because of Charlton Heston making a stink and was basically trying to get Warner Brothers to pull the album. Mm-hmm. They they supported Ice T. It should be said that they they pretty solidly supported Ice T and Body Count through the whole controversy, mm-hmm. which was surprising. But they did. They they kind of got cold feet. They were like, "Let we can't put out an album called Cop Killer." So they ended up releasing the album as just Body Count. Okay. And so, like I said, the music for the song was written by Ernie C. Ice T wrote the lyrics. He himself referred to the song as a protest record and said, "Quote: I'm singing in the first person as a character who's fed up with police brutality. I ain't never killed no cop." I felt like it a lot of times, but I never did it. If you believe that I'm a cop killer, you believe David Bowie is an astronaut. <laughs> it's just like 
fair. People are yeah. like, I do believe David Bowie <laughs> yeah. is an astronaut. Wait, David so Bowie didn't go to, to space? Now. What? <laughs> I don't know what to think now. I'm lost. <laughs> so uh, before we continue, I think it would, I'm not going to play the whole fucking song because okay. for one, you will just like your ears will bleed because I, I know you. But also let's just listen. Rights, probably. Yeah. <laughs> let's listen to just the first like part of Cop Killer, just so you guys kind of know what we're talking about. Okay. This next record is dedicated to some personal friends of mine, the LAPD. For every cop that has ever taken advantage of somebody, beat them down or hurt them because they got long hair, listen to the wrong kind of music, wrong color, whatever they thought was the reason to do it. For every one of those fucking police, I'd like to take a pig out here in this parking lot and shoot them in their motherfucking face. to it a little bit i was watching it i uh i'm not gonna lie that is not i think my my main issue with a lot of the metal that uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna sound i'm gonna i'm gonna sound very like get off my lawn but it just (laughs) sounds like it just sounds like noise but that had like a heavy rhythm to it so i was like oh yeah i can jam with yes to me it's almost more like structurally it's almost more of a punk song like it kind of feels more like hardcore punk than Mm. metal to me Mm -hmm. so it's like got a little bit of that like catchy kind of rhythm to it it's not like yeah but anyway so there there that's that's cop killer at least that's the first part of cop killer okay um so like i said this all came out right before the la riots Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm sure Amelia, you remember but after the Rodney King beating, which was like the first time. I mean, it's something unfortunately has become way too commonplace now, but mm-hmm. this is the first time I saw a video of police brutality. Right, right. And yeah, was, yeah. I think I think it was I'm trying to think. I think it was it was mine as well in terms of like seeing it. Right. Right. Yeah. And I remember at the time, because you know, I'm small town Los Alamos kid. Mm-hmm. you know and like it was shocking i mean and yeah. i think it was shocking to the entire country it wasn't yeah. just and of course i think black people in la new york detroit you know they were saying like hey this shit happens all the time yeah before like white america quote unquote it was a you know it was like a slap to the face right well i think i think it was i, I mean i don't i don't want to you know speak out of turn here but i think it was the because technically there was photographs and stuff of police violence during like the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. And there was some film and stuff. But. Right. But it that could all be couched under the thing of like, well, yes, but, yeah. you know, these people were protesting. They were doing this stuff. And so the police had to respond. Well, and also like, like, well, and that's history. You know, that was and that's, at the and time that's that was 30 years ago or 
Right. And I, it feels like Rodney King was the first time when it was like, no, this was just like, this, like just, this just brutality for the sake of brutality. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, that's absolutely right. Like, I, I think for me, what was shocking was the idea that this like happened, like this just happened. You know, mm-hmm. this wasn't ancient history. And and even like in retrospect, the 1960s and the 1990s wasn't ancient history, but I was 13. So it felt like ancient history. And it felt different. It, the footage was in black and white or like right. there's all these like footage and we could Southern all, Bubba sheriffs. With, right. We could all sort of believe like, oh, that's in the past. We don't deal with that anymore. But yeah, to like, I think that's what sort of the prevailing thought for me with Rodney King was that it was just like, this is this is over nothing. Like there is like, there's, there's no, there's no like excuse that you can make for the level of brutality that was exhibited in that attack. It was the first time I was encountered with the idea that like cops could just be bullies. Mm. And like, obviously it was race, you know, it was rooted in racism, but Mm -hmm. like, I think for me, I just, it was just like, cops are mean. Like these cops are mean. You know, that's, and like yeah. that was like that was a new idea to me. The cops could be me. Yeah, that's no an interesting. Reason. Yeah, that's 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 an interesting thing because I I mean I don't know if I even would have put it that way, but that was not my first. Uh, well, again, Los Alamos kid here. We're like yeah. you know our cops were helping. You know, it's like the stereotypical small town cop helping the kitten out of a tree. You yeah, know? yeah. So like this this was for me just a real. Like it was a real shock. And then like through that year, you know, 91 to 92, it was in the news constantly. Everywhere. Like it didn't go away. And this is at the time where the moral panic around gangster rap, which I think I'm not going to get into the whole thing, but like I have a whole rant that I could go into about how like the gangster rap moral panic was just another version of the satanic panic. Yeah. Um, It was, it was just took another form and like became more racially tinged. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but this is, you know, this is just an era of moral panics <laughs> around music and pop culture. And, you know, yeah. et so in the lyrics to the song, Ice, he specifically references Rodney King and LAPD uh, police chief Daryl Gates. Oof. So like I said, you know, the first inkling of controversy around this kind of started with Charlton Preston. Mm-hmm. Um, but then a Dallas patrol officer. So in Texas, not even in L.A., Mm-hmm. Heard about the song from his 14 year old daughter, and he what went, a, What a fucking narc! Yeah, fucking narc. <laughs> I, I had the same thought as I was reading this. That fucking kid, um, yeah. And he went to the Dallas Police Association, and then the Dallas Police Association, along with the Combined Law Enforcement Association of Texas or CLEAT, they then started a campaign to boycott basically everything from Warner Brothers until the album was pulled. Like, not just boycott the album. They were like, anything that's got the Warner Brothers or Time Warner name on it, boycott it. So, for instance, and this and this was bipartisan, by the way. This wasn't just a bunch of Southern Republicans. You mm-hmm. know? Like, Democrats were all piling on just as well. I remember mm-hmm. Bill Clinton talking about this song. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I had never realized is that there were three senators. Do you remember the movie Dave? With yes. Yeah. Love that movie. So, that was a lot uh, of... I'm just going to say is, I mean, I don't think it's a legitimate remake, but is essentially the same story as a fantastic movie called Moon Over Parador, Mm. um, starring Richard Dreyfuss and uh, Mm -hmm. Raul Julia. Yeah. 
fantastic. In movie. fact, I mean, I, I actually think they I, I've read this. I think it was somewhat inspired by Moon Over Parador. Oh, my God. If you can go find it. I, that was like a movie that I think me and my entire family went to go watch. Based exact same premise as mm. Dave, but it happens in this fake Latin American country. Yeah. Um, and it's fantastic. And a few I want to. I feel like it was a few Christmases ago, but it was probably like 18 because of the way my memory works. But a while ago, my brothers were all in town for the holidays and we were like, let's get Moon Over Parador. <laughs> and we watched it and that shit still holds up. Holds up. I, I don't think up. I've ever seen it. Um, <gasps> you yeah. have to watch it. But I have heard of it. I remember you talking about this at some point. So and, I, and I think I had read that Dave was maybe inspired. It was like a loose remake of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and for those of you who don't know, like Dave's a very inoffensive movie about like the president is played by Kevin Klein. Mm-hmm. He has a heart attack and dies, I think, while having sex with his mistress or something. And then they find this like random small town guy named Dave who looks like the president to like exactly step in. Exactly like the president. Because yes. also played by Kevin Klein. Mm-hmm. And then it's this like kind of romantic comedy about like Dave trying to be president and his relationship yeah, and he, with the first lady he was, and he was kind of Eva. like mm-hmm. and he was kind of like an ineffectual president right like he wasn't right he wasn't like doing a whole lot and then dave comes in and starts like i remember he brings in his buddy charles groden who's like his accountant yes and they balance yes. the budget in one night and oh like, my god it's like fantastic that. it's also, very like wish fulfillment <laughs> also in that movie i believe because it's set, you know, sort of like, I think kind of like in the future, I believe the vice president is played by Ben Kingsley. I think you're right. And he is technically 45. Like he would have been president 45. Interesting. Yeah. Because I feel like I tweeted about that a while ago. I was like, can we be in that timeline? Yeah. In the Dave timeline, not not the Trump timeline. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I remember Frank Langella played the White House Chief of Staff. It's a really yes, good movie, but fun. very, it's a sweet, inoffensive little film. Well, unfortunately, it was being put out by Warner Brothers. They were supposed to have these guest appearances by some senators, Democratic senators, Daniel Patrick Moynihan and Lloyd Benson. Lloyd uh-huh. Benson is the famous, like, ran with Dukakis in 1988. He was, okay. uh, vice presidential candidate and he's the famous with dan quayle like you sir no john kennedy <laughs> like that famous moment mm-hmm. that was lloyd benson and then a republican senator named al diamato they were all supposed to have cameos and dave and they pulled out out of protest because of cop killer also can we just do an r.i.p moment for when politicians used to say things like you sir or no i know john kennedy I as think- opposed to like releasing anime videos uh, right. wherein they're uh, oh and it was seen as like or, or it was seen as like you know such a takedown and like quail never recovered and like <laughs> i and what's funny is like i'm a politics junkie and mm-hmm. like i think that i remember watching that debate in 1988 and i feel like watching lloyd benson just spank dan quail was like the moment mm-hmm. i fell in love with politics you were like oh sick burn sick burn yeah. motherfucker but yeah like but so years old yeah <laughs> but so yeah these these senators they pulled out of uh doing a cameo in dave which is just like i mean it was I'm, I'm over here rolling my eyes yeah right. that's just stupid and then of course so it started with these dallas police organizations but then it just kind of steamrolled Mm-hmm. And so police organizations all around the country started piling on. And basically the argument was that these lyrics could cause violence against the police. 
And one guy, a guy named Dennis R. Martin, uh, who was from the National Association of Police Chiefs, he wrote an editorial. And I don't know where the editorial initially popped up. I found it again as like a web archive. I'm just going to read part of the editorial. Okay. He says, the misuse of the First Amendment is graphically illustrated in Time Warner's attempt to insert into the mainstream culture the vile and dangerous lyrics of the Ice-T song entitled Cop Killer. Those who work closely with the families and friends of slain officers volunteering for the American Police Hall of Fame and Museum are outraged by the message of Cop Killer. It is an affront to the officers, 144 in 1992 alone, who have been killed in the line of duty while the police were upholding the laws of our society and protecting all its citizens. And then he like goes on and the editorial just gets cuckoo bananas. He starts talking about like the (laughs) history of music and he like brings in like ancient China and the native Americans. And he's talking about the Canaanites in the Roman empire. And then he basically says, this is all like amazing, powerful music. And then it all starts to decline with the rise of rock and roll in the 1950s. And he says the Elvis quote forever changed the world. For the first time, contemporary music did not reflect the values of society, but glamorized rebelliousness in adolescent sexuality. And I'm like, really? You think that was the first time that that happened in music? Because, I mean, jazz, blues, like Mozart, like go back in time. (laughs) <laughs> um, and then he, and then he continues to say that the First Amendment has been abused to the point where the only prohibited speech quote involves the mention of God in public assemblies, which is was not true. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he claimed that there were at least two shooting incidents directly tied to the song. I looked and looked and looked. I found nothing. Of course, <laughs> supporting that as I don't know where the fuck he pulled that. But anyway, the controversy just kept spiraling. Eventually, President George H.W. Bush and VP Dan Quayle spoke out against the record. Of course. Um, Remember, this was an election year. This was an election year, yes. And Bush's polls had dropped significantly after the L.A. riots. And so this was Mm -hmm. just like... Like Bush was like famous for doing the Willie Horton ads against Michael Dukakis. If you like the horribly racist Willie Horton ads mm-hmm. against Dukakis. So this was just like his new Willie Horton campaign that he was going to try and use. It went so far that the song caused body count to be the band body count to be put on the FBI's national threat list, which, yeah, the face you're making is appropriate. I just, I just, again, want to say RIP for the moments in time when a song would put people on the FBI list, but like fucking, you know, essentially sponsoring (laughs) an insurrection doesn't. Right. right, Exactly. Yeah. It's pretty incredible. Like I remember the controversy around this. I don't, I didn't remember that it had gone that far, Mm -hmm. but of course there were plenty of people who jumped to the album's defense Mm-hmm. Uh, in the song's defense, a lot of people were pointing out that it was a fictional song, sung mm-hmm. in the first person from the perspective of someone who was rightly angry at cops. Mm-hmm. Also, people pointed out like he's got another song on the album called Mama's Gotta Die Tonight, where mm-hmm. he, I mean, it's a, a little weird to use this as a defense, but he murders his mother for teaching him to hate white people. Right. But so that's, I mean, but that's the thing too, is that they're not like, hey, this is also like, this is somebody who's like promoting violence against women. Like that's yeah. all fine. Because also from it's what you told about- me about KKK bitch, like yeah. that's also not a very like feminist forward no. <laughs> song. And nobody gives a fuck about that. But like, oh my God, somebody's angry at the cops. Yeah. And let's, was- 
it was you know, all, my memory is that it was all about cop killer and it was also all about ice tea they weren't mentioning that it was this band body count and they mm-hmm. were making it all about gangster rap and the thing is it's a heavy metal album it's right. not a gangster rap album so mm-hmm. just like there's there's some racism happening there. right but again like i said plenty of people were also defending the song and just defending his right as an artist to do what he wanted to do people pointed out the fact that he had actually played a cop just the year before in a movie, uh, the movie New Jack City. Mm. Um, I don't know who these guys are, but Mark S. Ham and Jeff Farrell had made the point that it was far from the first song to depict the murder of police officers. They cited Depression-era folk songs that celebrated Pretty Boy Floyd. They mm. talked about the song Policeman from a bluegrass fiddler named Tommy Gerald. Police come, I didn't want to go this morning. Police come, I didn't want to go this morning. Police come, I didn't want to go. this morning. And of course, the Bob Marley song, famously covered by Eric Clapton, I Shot the Sheriff. Mm-hmm. So like, granted, none of these songs are as explicit as Cop Killer, but like, mm-hmm. it wasn't like this has never, like this was not a taboo subject that had never been touched before. Right. Like I said, Time Warner, though, really did kind of stick to their guns in defending Body Count <sighs> to the point where Time Warner CEO Gerald Levin wrote an editorial for the Wall Street Journal defending the song. Again, he pointed out that it was a fictional story told in the first person. He said, quote, it doesn't incite or glorify violence. It's his fictionalized attempt to get inside a character's head. Cop killer is no more a call for gunning down the police than Frankie and Johnny is a summons for jilted lovers to shoot one another. Mm. He also goes on to say, like, this is just an instance of, like, people trying to find a way to, quote, silence the messenger when we should be heeding the anguished cry contained in the message. Mm. Um, but then a uh, time columnist named Michael Kinsley, he took issue with this offense. And he said, according to the song, quote, killing policemen is a good thing. That is the plain meaning of the words and no larger understanding of black culture, the rage of the streets or anything else can explain it away. This is not Ella Fitzgerald telling a story and song as in much of today's popular music, the line between performer and performance is purposely blurred. These are political sermonettes clearly intended to endorse the sentiments being expressed. Tracy Merrill, Ice-T himself has said, I scared the police and they need to be scared. That seems clear. So, I mean, I'm going to talk about Rye Come Down on the song a little bit later, but, you know, clearly it's just, it's like a football that's being thrown back and forth between both. Right. Ice-T himself said, I don't hate cops. I hate brutal cops. I don't hate people. I hate racist people. Eventually the song was pulled or the album was pulled from stores in Greensboro, North Carolina. And then even the New Zealand police tried to get in on the controversy um, because Ice-T was supposed to perform in Auckland and the New Zealand police commissioner tried to stop the concert. He said, quote, anyone who comes to this country preaching in obscene terms, the killing of police should not be welcome here. And then his attempts were unsuccessful. You know, Ice-T was able to perform, but this New Zealand police commissioner wouldn't stop. He didn't give up. He went so far as to take Warner Brothers in front of the country's, quote, indecent publications tribunal to get the record banned in New Zealand. Because apparently they had some law from 1963 about indecent, like anything that was accused of being indecent in front of this tribunal, which sounds very ominous to me, (laughs) very not pro-free speech to me. Right. But the tribunal listened to the song, determined it was, quote, not exhortatory. So not like exhorting people to kill the cops Okay, and said it displayed quote, an honest purpose. And they ruled in favor of Warner brothers and body count. So hmm. interesting. Um, so all these people like decrying the violence 
of the lyrics uh then turned around and started issuing death threats to the band to the executives from warner brothers yep stockholders started threatening to dump their stocks and pull out of the company Mm -hmm. in the end ice t decided to pull the song from the album so he re-released the album later that year it was the cop killer was replaced by a song called freedom of speech Mm. um and then he said quote i'm tired of being the willie horton of the moment take the song off that's what he told to a couple warner brothers executives and then ernie c the guitarist later said if they threatened us it's okay because we wrote the song let the chips fall as they may but there were other people at warner who didn't quite get it and we didn't need to have them in danger from a bunch of lunatics Mm. Ice-T ended up leaving Warner Brothers the next year because then they turned around and tried to censor his solo album, Home Invasion. And so here's what he said. He said, when I started out, Warner never censored us. Everything we did, we had full control over. But what happened was when the cops moved on body count, they issued pressure on the corporate division of Warner Brothers. And that made the music division, they couldn't outfight him in the battle. So even when you're in a business with somebody who might not want to censor you, economically, people can put restraints on them and because mm-hmm. and cause them to be afraid. I learned that lesson in there, that you're never really safe as long as you're connected to any big corporation's money. But like I said, most of the people at Warner Brothers, particularly in the musical side, like strongly defended the song. Mm-hmm. Later, Warner Brothers chairman, Mo Austin, he backed up what? Ice-T had said about leaving Warner Brothers in 1994. He said, Time Warner got so thin-skinned after the incident at the shareholders meeting. In the end, Ice-T decided to leave because he could not allow tampering with his work. And I can't blame him considering the climate. Hmm. So, and so here's, like I said, I said I was going to come to kind of where I come down on the song. Like, a couple things. One, I don't think it's, I'm I'm a Body Count fan, um, but I'm not actually a big fan of that first album or that song. Mm-hmm. And it's not that I'm offended by it. It's that I think, like, uh, like I mentioned, there's there's songs like KKK Bitch and things like that. It's the whole album. That whole album is trying so hard to be offensive from mm. start to end. That it goes back to what I was saying in my choose doll in the choose Dolly episode when I was talking about the whole right. death metal black metal thing. Right. It's like when you have death metal bands like Cannibal Corpse, you know, doing songs like Meat Hook Sodomy or like that band I told you about in Colorado, mm-hmm. you know, fucking the shit of the dead. It's like when you're trying so hard to be offensive, it just kind of gets silly to me. Mm-hmm. And it starts to feel a little like a novelty band. Like there's something about that first body can album that reminds me of like have you heard of Guar? the band Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like it kind of reminds me of guar where it's like guar is just like this cartoony hyper offensive band you go to a guar show and you get sprayed with fake blood and yeah and it's fun but it's all kind of like on that one level Mm -hmm. it's camp it's camp and like Mm -hmm. with guar they know it's camp you know Mm -hmm. body count i think definitely like it was meant like parts of it is meant meant to be funny but i don't think it was meant to be camp but it pushes it so far that it for me it's hard to take all that seriously mm-hmm. so like that's that's my thing is like just on an aesthetic level i'm kind of like yeah there's better body count albums that came mm-hmm. later um also like i definitely i think the protest and everything was histrionic you know and i think there was some opportunism because it was an election year yeah. But I, I go back to what I said, I think on the my Sonny Bean thing when I was just like, look, if if you're if you put out art that is meant to piss people off, you can't be surprised when people get pissed off. Right. And I don't think like Ice T, like I think he knew exactly what he was doing. I think the band knew exactly what they were doing. Right. You know? I, and I don't they've never really complained 
about the treatment. You know, I think they, yeah. they were meaning to piss people off and they did, and you know? Yeah. Um, so in that sense, I don't blame the police groups and everyone for saying, Hey, we're offended by this. Mm-hmm. I think the, like, there are two deaths we can associate with this and, you know, right. we need to roll back the first amendment. That's when it gets to be like, okay. Like, well, and I mean, you are a very staunch, uh, first amendment. You are a big first air. You should put mm-hmm. that in your, in your Twitter bio. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And that's just, I mean, it's, 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 you know, I think this was also around the time that Dan Quell decided to go after Murphy Brown for oh, having God. being a single mother and you know, doing <laughs> like, like they, literally, I never thought a controversy could be dumber than that. Yeah. But then 2016 happened. And uh, one, yeah, I'm not 100%. even sure that makes the top 20. Anymore. Right. Um, but which my fudget, the podcast you're wrong about actually did a whole episode on that whole Dan Quayle, Murphy Brown thing. It's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they talk, they, you know, all of this stuff was just born from the fact that Bush and Quayle were like, we're going to fucking lose this election. Like, we're going to be a one-term president. Nobody yep. wants to be a one-term president. This fucking sucks. We're going to lose. And we can drum up um, they were, they were support yeah. mm-hmm, with, you know, bullshit like this. Well, and like people forget 1988, they were looking at losing that election against Dukakis and Benson. Mm-hmm. And then they turned around and did the Willie Horton ads, which is mm. a whole episode, Lee Atwater. And all, that's a whole episode in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll do it at some point. But I mean, go back, just YouTube the Willie Horton ads. They are blatantly racist and just playing on white fears in, yeah. in the grossest way. And they won that election. So they tried to do it again with cop killer mm-hmm. and it didn't work, you know? Well, yeah. Yeah. And partly because like Bill Clinton also came out against the song, so they couldn't use it against Clinton. Well, and I think yeah. also too, people were like, but what have you done? Like you said, yeah. like you, you puked, you said no <laughs> new taxes. Yeah. And like we had a bunch of taxes, like you haven't done anything. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, he was, he was not a good president. He wasn't the worst, but he was. Yeah. Is, is he, is he still alive? No, he, he passed away like a year or two ago. Okay. I was going to say, you know, again, he's, I've just been dropping the RIPs all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it was like within the last year or two. Okay. Um, But yeah, like my thing is like, I, like I said, I actually really like body count. Mm-hmm. Um, but I became more of a fan of theirs with some of their more recent. Al- they put out an album last year called Carnivore. Mm-hmm. That is probably my favorite metal album of the last, at least the last year, maybe the last like three or four years. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just great. And the thing is, because they've kind of grown up a little bit and like, it's still ferocious, heavy metal. It's mm-hmm. still angry. There's a like, definitely like a protest music element to it, but it's not doing this, like just in your face. I'm trying to offend you. Right. Like silly cartoon camp thing that the right. first album did. Like, I mean, Carnivore is like an incredible album. Like this first Body Cat album, it's fun for what it is. If you take it on the level of like Guar. Mm. But like I said, it's hard to take seriously. And like, you know, I don't fault people for being offended by the song. I mean, because the song's trying to offend you. So. Right. We've like, talked about, we've talked about this a little bit before. The thing is, is that like being offended isn't illegal. Right. So like, that's the thing is you can't be like, I'm offended by this and therefore it shouldn't exist. Now, the tricky thing is that that, that works both ways. Yeah, exactly. It does. And the subtleties and the nuance of this are when does it incite violence or discrimination against an already vulnerable group? I'm sorry, 
you can't say that cops are vulnerable. They, I'm not saying that they don't work. I'm not saying that they don't do, that they don't have well, dangerous I'm, jobs. I'm not saying that, but cops as a class in society are not, not vulnerable. It shouldn't we should it shouldn't be treated as a protected class. And if anything, cops need to be held to a higher standard. And yes. As we've we could go on and on and on about yes. <laughs> all the things we all know. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it, it's like I'm I'm like if you're offended by the song Cop Killer, I I support your right to be offended. I support your right to speak out about it. I support your right to boycott it. You know, yeah, that's your right. Ice T, Body Count, Warner Brothers, they're not entitled to your money or your support. Yeah. Um, but when it gets to like the president talking about it and people issuing death threats, and, yeah, you know, that's when it's like, okay, you lose your moral high ground. Yeah. But anyway, okay, well, just to wrap it up, just in the aftermath. So like I said, Body Count's still around. Their last album, Carnivore, is like one of my favorite recent albums. If you're a metal fan, if you're an Ice-T fan, go check it out. It's fucking mm-hmm. it's fucking great. Ice-T, is, he's still a thing. He's still putting out music. He's He's been playing a cop on Law & Order SVU for like 21 years. Dude, literally. dude. Law and Order has been on for so damn long that literally, like, I've been in an episode of Law and Order at some point in time. Like, you've been on an episode of Law and Order at some point in time. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's been there forever. It's well, and like, I'm I'm not not to go off on a big thing about Law and Order, but like, (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, I'm not a big Law and Order SVU fan. But to me, the most watchable part of the show is probably iced tea Mm. his character (laughs) to me is the most fun (laughs) the song cop killer has never been re-released there was a live uh, version that came out in 2005 but it's never been officially released uh since you can't find it on streaming um Mm -hmm. if you go like mm -hmm. but go to youtube that's where i you know i just played it for you go to youtube you can find it there and uh obviously like go to ebay buy a cd from 1992 you know i used to have the body count album with cop killer on it because i found Mm -hmm. it like i said i wasn't even particularly that big a fan of the band but i found it in a used record bin. i want to say like 97 in colorado and i was like i wonder if this has got cop killer on it Uh and i was like oh shit this is the original price so i bought it uh-huh just to have it unfortunately burned in the los alamos fire like everything else but oh the youtube video has 2.6 million views Mm, so mm-hmm. people are still checking it out about its lack of availability on streaming services ernie c the guitarist said i think he just said this like a year ago he said it should be there it absolutely should be there some of these kids that are out there protesting they're 30 31 they were newborns when this was going on. What we talked about 30 years ago, we're still talking about. Yeah. And then talking about the song just last year, Ice-T himself said, it was a song about somebody who, during a moment like this, got so mad that they went after the cops. We don't want that guy. But a lot of times you warn people by saying this can happen. I never killed no cop. I've written better songs that are more on point with what I believe today. I was a little more radical back then. You got to remember 30 years ago, ice is different than 62 year old ice. Mm. And that is the story of body count and the controversy around the song cop killer. Fantastic. Hey, yo ice man. I'm working on this term paper for college. What's the first amendment? Freedom of speech. That's the motherfucking bullshit. You say the wrong thing. They like to ask up quick. The FCC says profanity, no airplay. They can suck my dick while I take a shit all day. You think I give a fuck? I am going to talk to you about Lady Pink, the first lady of graffiti. 
Ooh. Yes. This is exciting because I, I know nothing about this story. It, this is pretty cool. Um, so sources for this are Wikipedia, Artnet.com, Up Magazine, a paper called Subway Graffiti in New York City, Getting Up versus Meaning It and Cleaning It by Mary Alice Sloan Howitt and George L. Kelling and LadyPinkNYC.com. Okay. So I'm okay. <laughs> like <laughs> how, how, how do I want to start this? So I want to say just a little bit about this. The very last show that my theater company did before the world shut down was a show called this is modern art mm-hmm. um, written by Idris Goodwin and Kevin Koval. And it is about, it's based on a true story and it's about a crew of graffiti artists who tag the wall of the modern art wing of the um, Chicago museum of art. Oh my my God, I don't remember what the museum is, but yeah. it's a, it's a big thing. And it, it's, it asks a lot of questions about like who decides the validity of art, who decides right. the value of art and who gets to create art and you know, what is art and all of that stuff. So it's a, it's a, it's a really wonderful play. It, it was a really, it was a really great performance. Yeah, yeah. I have a soft spot for that show. And in it, like I said, they talk a lot about like I said, like who gets to make art and who gets to decide what art is and who gets to decide, you know, like what forms of art are valid. Right. Uh, and, you know, just like, just about like almost everything that we talk about on this <laughs> podcast, the sort of general consensus is that white European art is always valid. Any art that comes outside of that is less than it's folk art. It's vandalism. It's, you know, what it, right. it's, it's well, never high art. I mean, it's like going back to my story. It's like, you know, some depression art folk artists can talk about shooting cops because they're like pretty boy Floyd, but as soon as right. AST does it, everyone's up in arms. Right. Yeah. And so I had started to look into bits of graffiti because, you know, we needed to, we, we, we were using, we were posting a lot of stuff on social media about sort of like on this mm-hmm. day in graffiti history. And I had heard about Lady Pink. That was sort of the first thing I had heard about her and doing the research for that show. And then I came back to her. So I'm going to, I'm going to tell you all about her. Okay. Cool. I'm going to give you a very brief history of graffiti. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So graffiti is the practice of writing or drawing on walls or other public spaces, usually Mm -hmm. without permission. And it dates back to at least ancient Egypt, ancient Greece, and the Roman empire, if not like way, way further. Um, Until about 2014, it was believed that the oldest known human made wall paintings were those cave paintings found in Spain and France of the hands. Mm -hmm. Right. 2014 was the year that similar cave paintings were found on the Indonesian island of Sulawesi. Talking geography last night, if somebody had said (laughs) Sulawesi to me, I'd be like, can't even tell you what part of the world that's in. Um, Okay, so these are stencil-like outlines of human hands and stick figure animals, and they were thought to be like roughly the same age as the ones found in Spain and France. So like old, but not like old, old. Right. They used a process called uranium thorium dating, and that is apparently an extremely accurate way of dating rocks. And that uranium thorium dating essentially showed that these Indonesian cave paintings are at minimum 39,900 years old, putting them at least 2,000 years older than the oldest cave paintings found in Europe. Wow. This is uh, like, this is this is a bit of a sidebar. This is interesting because it allows humanity to move away from the idea that Europe was where 
it all like happened. civility and art and the humanities were starting to happen, mm-hmm. especially because another interesting thing about this is that it looks like the Indonesian cave paintings, it looks like they have brush strokes. No. Oh. While the paintings in Europe are dabbed like finger painting. Mm-hmm. So suck a dick, Europe. <laughs> yeah. It's Monet versus your five year old nephew. Yeah. My, my mom just rolled her eyes. My mom just went, <laughs> Um, (laughs) uh, The term graffiti originally referred to inscriptions, figure drawings, et cetera, that were found in and around ancient Roman Pompeii, but Mm -hmm. has now expanded to include any graphics that end up on any surface in a manner that constitutes vandalism. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of a a thing about it is that graffiti is uh, sort of inextricably linked to vandalism. Right. Another interesting sidebar, the only known source of the Sapphiatic language it's an ancient form of Arabic is in graffiti inscriptions scratched into rocks and boulders in Southern Syria, Eastern Jordan, and Northern Saudi Arabia. Interesting. Though debated, the first known example of modern style graffiti is in what is now Turkey, but used to be the Greek city of Ephesus. And it is supposedly an ad for sex work. Ah, okay. Mm-hmm. Ancient modern style graffiti could be anything from ads like these to love poems to political rhetoric, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, okay. So that's sort of like the, uh, um, did I just do that? Yeah. I just went through all of that. Yep. Okay. I sure did. Okay. <laughs> so let's talk about contemporary graffiti. Okay. Heavily influenced by hip hop culture. Graffiti right. is actually one of the four key elements of hip hop culture. And that is a culture and art movement created by black Puerto Rican and Caribbean Americans in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. The other three key elements of hip hop culture are rapping, DJing and breakdancing. Mm-hmm. What we think of when we think of graffiti was mostly born out of Philadelphia and New York City subway graffiti. Right. But modern graffiti also comes from the monikers, a.k.a. streaks, tags, or hobo art that was found on train cars and done by hobos or rail workers since the late 1800s. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Mm -hmm. My my grandpa probably did some of that graffiti. And that was stuff that was done with like grease pencils, uh, Mm -hmm. lumber pencils, and stuff like that. And I believe you can still find today. Oh, cool. But yes, no, not but. Sorry. (laughs) While a lot of graffiti can be seen as just vandalism, some, and I'd argue all have their own like poignancy. Uh, For instance, there's an inscription on the wall at the fortress of Verdun in France that reads Austin White, Chicago, Illinois, 1918. And Mm -hmm. then under that, it reads Austin White, Chicago, Illinois, 1945. This is the last time I want to write my name here. Ooh. Mm-hmm. So it was a soldier who'd gone for World War One and was sent back for World War II. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Ouch. Yeah. yeah. And so that's the kind of thing is that like, I know a lot of people can sort of be like, oh, this is vandalism and stuff. And I'm like, can you honestly say that that's vandalism? That's somebody who was like, yeah. please don't fucking send me back to another war halfway across R- the world right. again in my lifetime. Right. World War II is also when the Kilroy was here. Graffiti started. Right, 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 right. Um, for anybody who doesn't know what the Kilroy was here, it's a very simple line drawing. It's done usually with a marker of uh, like a little cartoon drawing of a guy 
guy. He's mm-hmm. bald and he has a long nose and he's like looking over a thing. And then it just says Kilroy was here. Right. Um, that's a whole thing. And probably again is, is uh, like, could be an episode in and of itself. That actually would be a pretty interesting one. Cause I've read about that. That's an interesting story. Yeah. And I think yeah. like really started popping up during world war two. And I feel like had a resurgence during the Vietnam war. I think so. Yeah. Maybe hold on. It's not me. It's my dog. <laughs> are you good? Or do you, are you, hold on. Welcome to our show. Welcome to our show. It's a good show. You jerk. You little jerk. Big, big shoe. It's really huge. She went and sat by the door and then looked at me. And then when I went to go open it, she like went outside and turned around and came back in. Like, I don't know why you opened the door for me. <laughs> Okay. So spray paint changes graffiti forever. Yeah. Spray paint was invented by a dude named Ed Seymour who wanted to find a way to paint radiators with an aluminum coating. And his wife was like, what if you just use like a spray gun Mm. and aerosol spray paint was born by 1973 Seymour's big spray. That is the name of the company. I don't mean like (laughs) big pharma, like like big spray paint. Also like (laughs) just 13 year old Scotty big spray. <laughs> okay, so his company Big Spray was making 270 million cans of spray paint a year just in the US alone. Mm, okay. So I mean people were like, oh, like I can spray paint. Amazing. Yeah. Yes, th- this is the future. <laughs> so spray paint then becomes the go-to medium of rebels, protesters and graffiti artists. Mm-hmm. I will say that before we had the very stylized graffiti that we think of when we think of graffiti rebels, punks, protesters, all of that stuff. We're using it to tag, to to tag stuff all over the place. So much of like punk art. Like if Mm -hmm. you look at punk art from the seventies is so rooted in graffiti. Yes. And it's, it's obviously, I mean, the stuff I have seen is usually somebody who just grabbed a can and sprayed something like Clapton, Clapton is God, like that whole thing Mm -hmm. that somebody had done. It was there, there wasn't a lot of like style to it. It A lot of like like, the anarchy A in the circle and things like that. Right. That kind of a thing. But so it becomes the go-to medium of rebels, protesters, and graffiti artists for a couple of reasons. One, it dries quickly, which means you can cover a big area very fast. Mm -hmm. It's easy to use. It's easy to steal and it's easy to hide. Uh What are you doing? You jerk. (laughs) Sorry, she literally just pulled the pad out of her crate, like tilted it diagonal and got it out of the door so that she could get her Kong out of there. You, She's an a-hole. Okay. So yeah. So dries quickly, easy to use, easy to steal, easy to hide. Mm-hmm. No one knows for sure who started using spray paint for graffiti art, but mm-hmm. some folks think that it became the medium of choice when artists like Cornbread and Julio 204 started using it to write their tags. Okay. Again, before this, they may have been using like paint markers, right. grease pencils, that kind of a stuff. Cornbread was a Philadelphia artist in the late 60s, and Julio 204 was doing his thing with spray paint in New York City at the same time, which later inspired 
Taki183, who was mm-hmm. also in New York. And that was the spark that lit the graffiti fire right. in New York. Right. Um, quick little sidebar Taki183 is a Greek American graffiti artist active in New York City during the 60s and 70s. He is, I believe, still alive today. We know that his given name is Demetrius, but Taki has never revealed his full name. Mm-hmm. Kind of like Banksy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're going to talk about Banksy in a bit. Okay. Okay, so artists soon also found out that switching the caps or the nozzles Mm -hmm. uh, of the cans would have an effect on how the paint came out of the can. So you can use one to create like sharp crisp lines for details, big softball sized spots of paint to quickly cover large areas, uh, et cetera. Mm -hmm. U.S. brands like Krylon and Oleum didn't want to encourage vandalism. And that is why spray paint is still locked up in stores to this day. Every time I have to buy spray paint, Oh, it's the they, biggest pain in the ass. They still card me to this day. Mm-hmm. The thing is, is that I thought for some, because I was under the impression for some reason that it had to do with huffing. It has nothing to do with huffing. It solely it's has to do with vandalism. This. Yeah. Yeah. I will say that European brands were much more willing to collaborate with street artists than American brands. In a way that doesn't surprise me. Right. It, it makes sense. If you are in Albuquerque and you want to see something cool, head over to All City Paint. It's on Central. They specialize in graffiti spray paint. Their inventory is amazing. Huh. That's cool. Um, I've never heard of that. That's cool. Mm-hmm. It's like their inventory is really quite dazzling. Uh, it's colors like you will never see in a Hobby Lobby or a Home mm-hmm. Depot. They also, I think they might have some like Krylon and stuff like that, but they primarily deal in spray paint that is for graffiti artists. Mm-hmm. So one, the colors are incredible. And yeah. two, the cans are all beautiful because they're like they're made yeah they're like artistically made yeah um they also have boxes and boxes i had to do i know this because i had to go and buy spray paint from there for this show and uh they've got like boxes and boxes of the caps that you can buy Mm -hmm. Uh, and they're like five cents each it's something like ridiculously cheap Mm -hmm. and because in the show, they talk about fat caps, which are the ones that you can use to make like the big spots of the big, like softball size spots of paint. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I guess somewhat naively thought that these were going to be big caps. They're actually very, very small, but they just spray. They, they, yeah, it's, I mean, it is, it's a big, it's a big, like softball size. It's like, and it's dense. It's like completely interesting, opaque. Uh, it's it's very cool. So yeah, um, if you want, they're also a head shop. Um, so if you're looking for some <laughs> cannabis paraphernalia, you can also check them out. I guess. Well, no, we can't say that now because uh, I don't think you can get in trouble for that anymore in yeah. Albuquerque. Donia, I need you to settle down, my love. <laughs> I Your can little hear tippy her. taps. Yeah. I don't know what her problem is. Come here. Come here. No, she's just looking at me. Okay. Um, okay. So if you were a teenager in New York city during the 1970s, it was very likely that your high school didn't provide any art classes whatsoever. So New York's youth took their art education and practice into their own hands. And they started using the biggest, most accessible canvases they had available to them. Mm-hmm. Subway cars. Right. They covered entire subway cars inside and out, including maps, 
windows, seats, oh, yeah. everything. Watch any New York movie from the seventies. Like, uh-huh. Yeah. And you can, if you look up, like if you, if you Google graffiti, you'll start to see the pictures. And if you get a little bit more specialized, like New York city graffiti, seventies mm-hmm. and eighties graffiti. And it is, I mean, covered the longer your piece was up on a subway car, the more like street cred you got Yeah, city government and transit officials were like flummoxed. At every turn by this, like they were like, we don't know how they're doing it. We don't know how to stop it. We don't know how to prevent it. Like we can't do anything to stop them from doing this. And it was a big, it was a really, really big deal. I think it was also very much seen because it was something that came out of the Bronx. It was seen as something that was done by like dangerous individuals. And it meant Mm -hmm. that gangs were everywhere. And yes, gangs used graffiti, but also I will just say that like the Klan was using graffiti. White supremacists were using graffiti to like tag their territory. Right. Um, So don't be a racist. And there we go. Norman Mailer said graffiti was vibrant folk art, quote, the colorful self-expression of creative adolescence. Mm -hmm. But pretty much everybody else was like, no, they're thugs and vandals. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to give you a quick graffiti vocabulary lesson from Idris Goodwin and Kevin Koval's play. This is modern art tags or tagging. That is something quick with a paint marker, one color, one line, a continuous line. That's the stuff that you'll see on like stop signs and stuff like that. Throw up a more elaborate. Usually it's more elaborate, usually done in a few colors, maybe a black or white outline with something bright to fill Mm -hmm. in and then piece, which is short for masterpiece. This is large, detailed, and intricate, colorful, complicated, also Mm -hmm. known as wild style. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's talk about the lady of the hour, Lady Pink. Um, Sandra Fabara was born in Ambato, Ecuador in 1964. She moved to Queens, New York at the age of seven, and she originally wanted to be an architect like her father. Mm. She was an extremely artistic kid from a very young age. She was like, I was an extremely artistic kid from the time I was a toddler. Yeah. So who knows? Um, she started writing. Yeah. She started writing graffiti in 1979. She was 15 years old. Mm -hmm. Um, started writing graffiti in 1979 after the loss of her boyfriend. That makes it sound like he died, but sources from what I could find, it was that he, he was sent to Puerto Rico. Oh, okay. And so, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, still you're 15. It feels like, of course. Yeah. Yeah. He's gone. You guys can't be together anymore. So she processed her grief by tagging his name all over New York city. Oh, that's kind of sweet. It's very sweet. And it would be like, I'm sure none of them exist anymore, but it would be amazing to find like one of those like original lady pink tags. Yeah. I'm sure they don't exist anymore, but lady pink was introduced to graffiti at the Manhattan high school of art and design. And she started exhibiting her work in galleries when she was a senior in high school. So I'll talk about it a little bit more, but like what's very interesting about her is that as she is coming up in the street art scene, she is also coming up in the like, quote unquote, legitimate art scene. Right. Like she's, she's doing them at the same time. That kind of happened with like Basquiat too, I think. 
funny you say that because she <laughs> goes on to say, at the age of 17, I was going to parties with Andy Warhol at some rich person's house and hobnobbing with people like Keith Haring and Jean-Michel Basquiat. Uh, mm-hmm. I didn't even have time for my senior year of high school because I was exhibiting and traveling the world. But on the weekends, I was still having adventures with my friends, going to some crazy part of town and painting subway trains because it was just sheer fun. Mm-hmm. Graffiti was, of course, a very male dominated art form. Yeah. And uh, Lady Pink was the only girl running around with these guys. It took Lady, it took the young Lady Pink months for her to convince them to take her to the train yards because she presented as very feminine. Mm-hmm. She uh, was always wearing dresses with a full face of makeup. She wore like high heels to school. Mm-hmm. She said, quote, I understood why they were reluctant, but I was a sturdy, hardy girl, brave and fearless and absolutely reckless. They told me I was insane. I didn't take orders from anyone. So it was hard controlling me. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> so why the name Lady Pink? Pink. Artist Scene TC5, who she met as a freshman, I think they're actually like their birthdays are within a week of each other. They both started school at the same time. So they're like mm. almost the exact same age, gave her the name Pink because Pink is feminine. Yeah. Lady Pink wanted other writers to know that she was a woman. Apparently at the time, the very, very, very few female writers that there were hid the fact that they were women. They didn't want anybody knowing because they felt like they wouldn't be taken seriously. Right. They wouldn't get the cred. They wouldn't get the cred. She was like, no, I want people to know that I'm a woman. She says, quote, it was the scene that chose pink for me. Guys wouldn't write it because hip hop and graffiti were always very homophobic. It was Mm -hmm. well known that pink would be a girl and they wanted to be known around the city that they were the only group with a girl. So Mm. not only was she like, I want to advertise that I'm the girl. Her crew was also like, yeah, we've got a chick. That's cool. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She was also kind of obsessed with historical English romances, the Victorian period and aristocracy. <laughs> so she threw in the lady because she was royalty. Mm. Um, she says, I titled myself that I chose. We had the most popular table. They treated me like a queen. I'd snap my fingers and some kid would go fetch me food. That was high school. <laughs> Honestly, I spent like four hours at the lunch table. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I love it. I love that she was like, fucking respect me. Um, <laughs> she also liked the way that Lady Pink look aesthetically when tagged. She talks a lot about the way that the L kicks out and how the I was really cute and she and like she could dot it with a heart. Mm-hmm. So again, it's like very feminine. Yeah. Pink was met with equal parts hostility, acceptance, and support, though she says she may have been met with a tad more hostility. <laughs> <laughs> In 1980, just after she'd started high school, artist Crash invited her to be a part of the first graffiti exhibit at Fashion Moda. So again, she's like getting into this stuff and immediately getting into galleries and exhibitions and all that stuff. And then suddenly she's working with artists that were her heroes. Like she was looking up to them one minute and then showing alongside them the next. And again, it's got to be like like a bit of a mind fuck. Yeah. Yeah. And she seemed to kind of be like, well, yes. (laughs) Like, I am here and so therefore deserve to be here. Good for um, her. 
Her very first piece was outlined by fellow artist Lee Quinones, and she stated that that was the only time she ever let a man do that for her. And she allowed that because she was nervous. So mm. essentially, he basically he, he, he outlined it. Right. And then she went in and filled it in. But after that, she was like, I can't, I can't have a man doing that for me. Like I mm. have to do it all on my own. But she allowed herself that first time because she was nervous. Yeah. After that, she knew that she wouldn't be able to have her pieces outlined if she wanted to keep up with the crew she was running with. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pink was also in a relationship with Lee, who I just said outlined her first piece. And she said, she said that he tried to crush her and mold her to the way a man thought a girl should be quote. I was saying, hell fucking no, I'm making my own decisions and running my own life. I'm not under some man's thumb. I was a feminist and I didn't know it. So it was a lot of clashing and fighting. Mm -hmm. Uh, As pink made her mark on New York city. She also had a lot of close calls. Okay. Here's the thing about graffiti. I'm sure if you've ever paid any attention to it, you have seen a tag, a throw up something where you're like, how the hell did they get there Uh, in LA? Like all the time, it's just like hanging off of some overpass or in like the upper floors of some building. You're just like, yeah. How the fuck did they, did they have a helicopter? Oh, like, yeah, what the fuck how did they do? It, yeah. And that's the thing is like, they're, you know, like they're sneaking up to these like hard to get places. They're in train stations and yards. They're running from the cops. They're falling through elevated train tracks. Mm-hmm. And she is doing all of this in a city that was trying to like eat her up and spit her out. Yeah. Additionally, Lady Pink was a tiny human. (laughs) She was like 90 pounds soaking wet. Mm -hmm. She had this to say about that. Quote, just getting to the worst neighborhoods in New York City in the middle of the night was scary enough. I traveled with a knife. If you clean your nails with a knife on the subway platform, guys will leave you alone. You should Mm. know that. Yeah, that's good. Good uh, life hack there. Yeah. Look, pro (laughs) tips with Lady Pink. In 1983, she is one of the stars of the movie Wild Style, a Mm. hip hop film by Charlie Aaron that also featured the likes of Fab Five Freddy, Pink's boyfriend, Lee, who I just mentioned, the Rocksteady crew, Grandmaster Flash, and Zephyr. Mm -hmm. I've seen that movie. Mm, You have? Yeah. I don't remember it that well. I think I watched it in college. I remember it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. A quick little side note about Zephyr. Zephyr is a graffiti elder. So Mm, he's, he's considered a graffiti elder who along with lady pink Futura 2000 blade phase two cash and talkie 183 invented styles and standards, which are still used today. Mm, Cool. His real name is Andrew Witten. So there are people who have been like, okay, this is my real name there. Yeah. Yeah. There are other graffiti artists who were like, no. Nope. So that's like the kind of people that Lady Pink was running with, like legit fathers of modern contemporary graffiti. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, she was she was like the one chick. Yeah. Um, also in 1983, she was involved with a book titled Subway Art by Martha Cooper and Henry Chalfant. She also collaborated with Jenny Holzer, who is a well-known neo-conceptual artist for exhibitions at Fashion Moda. In okay. 1984, at the age of 21, she held her first solo show at the Moore College of Art and Design in Philadelphia. Okay. So she's 21 years old. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things there's, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's like super interesting about her. One is her style because it feels like it really blends Latin American mural art with graffiti. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, 
She's also a graffiti artist who is able to go legit and have her work shown in galleries while right. continuing to straddle this line of like legal and illegal art. Right, right, right. In the 2019 Artnet interview that I uh, cited earlier, the interview asks her how perceptions have changed to graffiti. And she responds with, I've been stopped by the vandal squad and told to stick to my little interior galleries and make my money that way to quit painting these big paintings outside because I inspire young people to do vandal. Vandalism. And I say, I inspire everyone from poets to illustrators, to photographers, to other artists. I inspire the community. And mm-hmm. if I wanted to inspire vandalism, I do tagging. Wouldn't I? I do lots of tagging, but no, I don't. I do big mm-hmm. murals, beautiful illustrative works. I put it up there for the world to see. This is how it's done. Yeah. She's a badass. Uh, (laughs) Graffiti is a well-constructed subculture. There are rules, ethics, codes of conduct, hierarchies. You do not destroy a master's work, Mm -hmm. which brings us to five points. Okay. In the 1990s, a developer named Jerry Walkoff started leasing spaces within the building that used to house the Neptune Meter Factory as artists' studios. Okay. So it was this like big, like, you know, Neptune meter factory building. And he was Mm -hmm. like, well, let's start doing this. Let's start leasing them to local artists. They can have their studios in here, blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, The exterior of the building started to get covered in street art and was actually world renowned for the art on its walls. So it's a little bit like, you know, the rail yards here are so much glass, but sort of imagine a like something big like that. And just everywhere that isn't a window is just covered. Just with, covered, right. But like, it's, it's like, it's curated. You know yeah. what I mean? It's not stuff being covered and stuff all over the place. It's like, this goes here. That's here. People's big like tags are everywhere. Right. It, it was, was in- like encouraged and yeah. Yes. The building was known as the Fun Factory, <laughs> sort of like colloquially, but was renamed Five Points in 2002 after Wolkoff hired graffiti artist Jonathan Cohen, also known as Mears One, to curate the exterior murals. Okay. So Mirrors One is like, okay, cool. Let me start bringing people in. Like, let's make this like a public gallery for these street artists right. and do all that stuff. It was named Five Points for the Confluence of the Five Boroughs of New York City. Mm, okay. Riders from all over the US, Canada, Switzerland, the Netherlands, Japan, and Brazil came to paint on the walls of Five Points. Nice. In 2013, Wolkoff decided to demolish Five Points oh. and replace it with a residential complex thus erasing decades of graffiti Uh, artists and displacing 200 artists whose studios were housed inside. He just decided one day, he's like, okay, I've had my fill of this. Yeah. The exterior murals, which had been done with Walkoff's blessing, were whitewashed overnight. In October of 2013, Mears One made a public appeal in The Guardian to famous street artist Banksy, who was doing a month-long residency in New York City at the time. Mm-hmm. Mears said, we're not asking you to give us money, but your words could help us. Why don't you put a comment out? Mm-hmm. Banksy said nothing oh. until October 31st, the final day of his residency, when he posted on his website, thanks for your patience. It's been fun. Save five points. Bye. That's it. That's all he did. That's all he did. That's a bummer because I like Banksy, but that's disappointing. That's, 
it's a bummer. In 2014, the building was demolished completely. Mm, okay. The artists, including Lady Pink, filed a lawsuit against Walkoff, stating that the destruction violated the 1990 Visual Artists' Rights Act. This, like what was sort of like stated in this act was that those artists should have had 90 days to record, photograph, yeah, take down their art at the like at the cost to the artist, but if they wanted to to like remove the portions of the wall, basically, right. you know, create a, a record of it and to be like, okay, this was here, this piece was done by this person, and he didn't do I that. Mean, he it's just, just the building down. Yeah, just well, and just the whitewashing it overnight, like the, that. That's a dick Awful. move. That. Like you, Ugh. you, you went out of your way to provide this space for people, then to mm-hmm. just yank the rug out from under them. Yeah, when he—that's bullshit. When he should have and was required by law to give them ninety days, right, to take care of their pieces. Yeah, that's like the least you could do. Like, like, what would that cost you, money-wise, to give people the ninety days to do that? No like, idea. Yeah. Um, Lady Pink said, I'm not one to be suing landlords or anything like that, but this was a special case. Those 20 artists were looking up to me to be a part of it because I was the most respectable of the bunch. We had to set a precedent that we are artists of worth and of value and are not to be taken lightly. Museums around the world label us as contemporary art and seeing an exhibit like this, there is no doubt. The place was a Mecca. It was amazing. I sent hundreds of artists to paint there and mirrors would give everyone a spot, no matter what age. Mm. Uh, the lawsuit was a really big deal because it would pretty much decide if graffiti could be classified as art that could be federally protected. Yeah. In November of 2017, a jury recommended that Judge Frederick Block, who was presiding over the case, issue a verdict that Walcoff's destruction of the graffiti was illegal. Mm-hmm. In February of 2018, Judge Block awarded $6.7 million to 21 of the artists oh, whose work had been destroyed. Walkoff appealed the decision, but the Supreme Court ruled nah in, 20, <laughs> in, in October of 2020. Walkoff passed away in July of 2020. Wait, so the U.S. Supreme Court? Yeah. Wow, like this conservative Supreme Court came down on the side of the graffiti artist. That's, yep. that's surprising. That's cool. That's surprising as fuck. (laughs) Yep. Wow. 100%. The lady today. I mean, fuck that guy. I mean, I mean, fuck that guy. guy. Yeah. And also $6.7 million. It basically works out to $150,000 per piece of work that was destroyed. Mm -hmm. And also for a guy who like is a big developer like that, I'm sure $6.7 million is not like breaking the bank, you know? Yeah. But I like, I think it's amazing that they ruled in the artist's favor. Yeah, because like, now it's in like legal precedent. So precisely. there you go. Yeah. The lady today, Lady Pink continues to create works of art, uh, although she's primarily working on canvas. And she also visits schools to teach kids about the power of art through workshops and lectures. She lives, I think, just right outside of New York City currently, but she is she goes back and she does projects where she does like one mural a year with schools. So she goes and she teaches them how to do this. She shows them how to like plot and plan and get the design up and everything, which is really mm. cool. That she is cool. she is married to graffiti artist 
Smith, also known as Roger Smith of graffiti duo Sane Smith. If you know anything about graffiti, uh, you know that Sane Smith is responsible for painting the top level of the Brooklyn Bridge in 1988. Oh, Mm-hmm. That's cool. Mm-hmm. I've, I've heard of that, but mm-hmm. like, yeah, if you Google Sane Smith, it's the pictures will come up. It's white and it just says Sane Smith, but it is on the fucking Brooklyn Bridge. Yeah. <laughs> like it is high up there. Their piece could be seen for miles. It attracted the attention of the FBI and resulted in them being sued by the city of New York for $3 million, the wow. biggest lawsuit to date against graffiti writers. Wow. I, I have to imagine that they just were like, if you can get up there to tag, like you can get up there to do anything. Yeah. So we're all, we're like creeped out. Crack down. Yeah. Yeah. Lady Pink's work is known for its celebration of women. I'm going to leave you with somewhat lengthy quote from the lady herself. She says, apparently I was a feminist before I even knew what the word was. As a teenager, I had to hold it together for all the other ladies. There were a lot of girl writers in my school and they drew in books, but they never went out on the trains. They all looked to me to do those missions because I was the bravest one. I had a lot of girls looking up to me. I was inspired by pop culture of the decade, like Marsha Brady standing up for herself. My heroes were even those silly girls from Charlie's Angels. You didn't have to be a crazy dyke in order to be strong and powerful. You could be well-coordinated and feminine and beautifully made up, and you could kick ass in high heels. Those girls inspired me not to let men run all over me. A lot of those female themes are in my work because early on I could see we haven't reached equality. We don't get paid the same. We don't get treated the same. Also, I like girls because I like girls. I've lived with my (laughs) girlfriend for about nine years. I've been married to a guy for 25. So I'll go both ways. I like (laughs) girls for other reasons than just empowering women. You know, girls are cute, but it's (laughs) all just about inspiring younger artists and women that I can empower other women to do their thing is absolutely priceless. It keeps me going. It keeps me painting. And that is the fascinating wow. true story of graffiti's first lady, Lady Pink. I, well, I just did a Google image search. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm looking at some of her stuff just on Google. I mean, it's mm-hmm. fucking incredible. It's incredible. Like the level of detail is amazing. And yeah, the yeah. vibrant colors and like, and they're like kind of surreal. And like, mm-hmm. yeah, like if you guys haven't checked this out, like, I mean, I'm sure you're going to post stuff in social media, but like, yeah, just do yourself a favor and do a Google image search because this is, I'd never heard of her before. Um, yeah. Like I said, I like, you know, I mean, I'm bummed about the Banksy part of the story. I like Banksy. I like the idea of Banksy. I like a lot of his work, but like when you look at his stuff and we're assuming it's a he. Right. I should, I, I should say I've always liked the idea of Banksy being a collective, but I think that's been like kind of disproven but really yeah there was that was a theory for a while that banksy was actually a collective of uk-based graffiti artists but i think they i think they've confirmed it's like one dude but but like when you look at his stuff it's like it goes much more back to what you're talking about with like the punk rock art like it's you know it's like stenciled and it's it's much simpler and it's much more like conceptual when you Mm -hmm. look at lady pink stuff it's just i mean that is like the level of skill is yeah amazing yeah It's nuts. And that's the thing too, is that I think like, you know, like, yeah, when I saw the thing about, especially that he wasn't like, it's not that he wasn't like, I'm just not going to say anything because this, you know, not my circus, not my monkeys or whatever the fuck, Mm -hmm. or that he was like, okay, let me put out this, that he did like literally the least, the least he could do. Yeah. Well, and that's just a like, man, talk about forgetting where he came from, you know, like that's what that sounds like to me. 
Right. And though, I actually think that it is right in line with Banksy. Like, I Mm -hmm. think that kind of a statement is right in line with somebody who's going to deliver a piece of his art to be sold at auction that has a built-in shredder. And then the Mm -hmm. second the sale is made, he's like, psych. Which is, I mean, that's the stuff that I like about him is like, you know, the kind of the fuck you to the art world stuff. Right. But like, And then I, I think it's just that he's like, no, but like really fuck you to the entire art world. Yeah. Yeah, and like that's the part that's a bummer. <laughs> it is, it's like, yeah, well, it well. is a bit of a bummer. It's like I was like, man, that's that's I really had kind of hope. I would have that hoped guy. that he would have come out with a stronger statement. And also, who knows? I mean, maybe that was the kind of thing where he was like, this is actually the only kind of statement that I can make without giving anything else away. About yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Who knows? It what feels very like. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Can I tell you real quick before we wrap up about like one of my favorite pieces of famous graffiti? Yes. And again, it's it's very different than Lady Pink because it's barely art, but just as a is a concept. I love it. Have you ever heard of the Surrender Dorothy graffiti outside of DC? Surrender Dorothy? No, but I'm gonna look it up while you're so you, you you've seen the Wizard of Oz, right? Uh-huh. So in uh in the Wizard of Oz, there's that scene where they're on the yellow brick road. I don't remember where they're at, but they look up and the wicked witch is in the sky and she's doing the sky writing and it says surrender Dorothy. Oh, uh-huh. Well, so there's this bridge on this highway outside. I think it's like right outside of DC. It's like in the DC suburbs. And as you're driving out, you're kind of out of the city. There's like a railroad bridge and someone keeps spray painting surrender Dorothy okay. on the railroad bridge. And then as you go under the railroad bridge, Rising out of the horizon is the Mormon temple, which <laughs> looks like the, the Emerald City. Okay. And it's just like such a weird, and apparently they keep painting it over. And then like someone will go back and just be like, surrender Dorothy. Like <laughs> it's just kind of such a like perfect, like use of geography yeah. <laughs> for your art. So. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. I, there is something there there is something about which is, you know, sort of what attracts me to Banksy's work and to graffiti as a whole is this thing of like it being done sort of like in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. You know, no one knows who does it. It's all, it's one of the things that uh, I found really fascinating about the story that This Is Modern Art is based on. Because if you know it, the thing has, the the museum has cameras. Mm-hmm. There was a, a very, very, very limited amount of time in which they had to throw up the entire piece, mm-hmm. you know, between like, uh, I think camera angles shifting and security guards making the rounds and all that stuff that I just think is like, I, like, I, I, it well, it speaks it speaks to the I think the punk rock side of me yeah, that you always what, say is like sort of deeply buried. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, that's what I appreciate about it is that like like as I think we've talked about on here, I don't have a lot of use for like high art and like you know the the kind of like the accepted mainstream you know whatever like appropriate stuff that is like you know the gatekeepers has decided as like this Mm. is good art you know Mm -hmm. like i like punk rock and horror movies and heavy metal and stuff so like Mm -hmm. i like the rebelliousness of like no we're just gonna go for fucking paint some shit on this building and like we know it's gonna get torn down or painted over or something but we're gonna do it anyway as do i and i would just say my feeling on that is like fuck the gatekeepers the artists mm-hmm. who are out there like michelangelo was just trying to like set 
you know, the, like the images free from the marble. He, right. he was not sitting there being like, this is going to be high art. Same thing, you know, with the Sistine Chapel, Leonardo da Vinci, like all right. of those, all of those like great artists. Shakespeare. Shakespeare. We're just out there doing the damn thing and trying yeah. to make something. So, and the art is, you know, it's impressive. It doesn't mean that it's the only standard to which art should be held, mm-hmm. but it is, I mean, they're like, they, it, it like those works are masterpieces. So Mm-hmm. My feeling on that is just like screw the gatekeepers. The people well, that, who are like, I mean, well, we're deciding that this is art and that is. Like, I mean that that's that's basically garbage. yeah that's basically what I mean. It's not like yeah. I think anything that people have accepted as good art is trash. Like I'm not saying that, but it's it's just like the the attitude behind it, the the snobbishness and the and the exclusionary aspect of it. And then right, and I do I just appreciate. Like the same way I appreciate, you know, when I used to go see like death metal and like dingy clubs in Colorado Springs, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like, this is like outsider art. This is like stuff that, you know, feels dangerous in some way and it's rebellious and, you know, it appeals to like some like, you know, teenage boy in me that still wants to go like, you know, (laughs) fuck up the system or whatever. But like what, what's amazing to me about graffiti art, you know, people like Lady Pink, um, and like Albuquerque is known for, I don't know if it's so much graffiti, but just the murals around Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. I was going to bring that up. Have we talked about Roy G. Biv on this podcast yet? I think you mentioned. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But like not in detail. Yeah. Like I love the, like, you know, you think, oh, graffiti, it's vandalism or whatever. But then if you look closely, like there's amazing art and amazing skill to yeah. be found everywhere. Yeah. You, know? you don't My- have to go to a gallery. You know, precisely. Yeah. And my, you know, also what I like about graffiti art is that it's, it's one, it's, it's temporary because the Mm -hmm. likelihood that it's going to get covered up or painted over or whatever uh, is high. And two, it's just my, one of my favorite things that's happening in graffiti. And this might make me basic. Uh, graffiti <laughs> artists might be like, you are fucking basic for liking <laughs> this. But it is just such a cool technique mm-hmm. is the graffiti art that they're doing now that makes it look like it's a neon sign. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, you know, videos of people doing that stuff and the vi- the videos will be like close up. So you see very close up shots of the lines being done and everything. And mm-hmm. then when you step back, it is, you know, mm-hmm. what I see. It's pretty cool. I, the thing I saw recently was somebody had done a big Skeletor face. Oh, yeah, I think um, that. Yeah. And had done it to make it look like it was a neon sign. And it's just... It's just a technique. That's all it is, is just layering paints in a way uh, Mm -hmm. that make it look like a neon sign. And it, it just like every time I see one of those pieces, my, my pupils dilate. And what, what I like about like just the idea of like outsider art or folk art in general Mm-hmm. is like this is art where like the artists have to teach themselves the techniques and right. so they're thinking outside the box they're not going by like the academic standard of what right is like supposed to be good art they're like right. they're coming up with their own techniques they're doing their own thing and that's where like you just find this like explosion of creativity right know? yeah i uh i'm I, I, it just in case i i feel like i talked about it but i'm trying to think what episode i would have talked about roy g biv i i feel on. like the name i mean maybe it wasn't on an episode but i know you've talked about roy g biv with me right so if i haven't talked about this well if i have talked about it repeat and i guess bye we'll see you in two weeks but <laughs> if i but I haven't talked about it. Roy G. Biv was the sort of, I actually don't know if that was the actual name of the artist that had been created by the artist, or if that's just sort of like what the artist 
kind of collectively became known as, mm-hmm. but it was a series of, um, it was the spectrum, hence Roy G. Biv, because it was like red, orange, yellow, green, blue, mm-hmm. purple. It was like these rainbow porn and it was a pouring. So you could tell that whoever had done them, it, you would find, and you would see them on the weirdest places, like on the sides of buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe Farina downtown has one in the bathroom. Or mm, did interesting, uh, yeah. Which I was like, how the fuck? But it's <laughs> it's basically, you know, it's 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 a, a pouring technique. So it looks like the paint is just dripping down, but it's in this like really nice, clean mm-hmm. uh, rainbow. And they were popping up everywhere for mm-hmm. for like a good while there in like the early aughts, mm-hmm. I think. And I think they've stopped. I think they've stopped popping up. But I was eating. It was like a tech or I don't know what the hell we were doing, but a friend of mine and and me were eating at a restaurant downtown and we see the cops pull up and they're like looking up at a building and doing all that stuff. And I like stick my head out and I see Mm -hmm. that like one had just been done. Oh, that's cool. (laughs) Yeah. So whoever it was, and I like, as far as I know, I think I know of one person who knows Roy Biv's true identity. Mm -hmm. And other than that, I don't know it's that like, anybody knows anything about them. Yeah, I I never have heard. Like, yeah, it's but it's it was it was always so cool to be like ah, there's another one. Yeah, look up on the outside of the Sunshine Theater or whatever the hell. Yeah, uh, and they, they were like cool little Easter eggs, like art Easter eggs to find around the city. Yeah, and just in general, like anyone, if you're not from Albuquerque and ever visiting here, just drive around and look at the murals. Like some of them are graffiti, like non-sanctioned, and then a lot are sanctioned. And, and there's there, some really great stuff. There is a lot of really incredible stuff. Uh, the back of the building, uh, I don't remember what street it's on, but it's the back of the building that houses O-Ramen and Naruto uh, mm-hmm. and that whole thing. They The entire back of that building is done in like, it has an, has like insane graffiti murals. I will also say that again, if you are in Albuquerque, sorry, I'm scrolling through something to find. Uh, there is actually a Knob Hill mural tour. Oh, Um, and you can visit Muros. So that's M U R O S A B Q.com for a comprehensive list of Albuquerque's murals, plus information about the artists and the locations of the murals themselves. Oh, nice. I'll put that in the show notes. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So cool. I liked our sort of like uh, controversial art episode. Yeah. Yeah. This was a good one. Yeah. This was a lot of fun to do. Um, uh, All right. We're going to see you in a couple of weeks. So don't, Mm -hmm. you know, don't be scared. (laughs) (laughs) Don't panic. Don't panic. Calm down, guys. God, calm down. (laughs) It's the holiday season. So, you know, if you can't, maybe, you know, take some CBD or something and just like release into the holiday season. (laughs) Uh, We hope you guys are doing good. Thanks for listening. Yeah. You know, love you, mean it. Uh, Stay curious. No, stay weird. Stay curious. It's been Mm. a bit. Stay weird. Stay curious. And we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Bye. Bye. Listen, friends, we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing.